Hey guys, and welcome to the fourth episode of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. I'm your host, Ray Russell. Joining me, as always, Steve Ekstat. Steve, are you ready for two more Raws and two more Nitros? Yeah, man, I'm excited. I, I just love this time frame. I know it's 95 and it gets crapped on a lot, but as a kid, it was it was tremendous. Well, having two wrestling shows at the same time, it's a smorgasbord of uh, taste, and uh, it's something there for everybody. So yeah, I'm definitely excited to jump in. Yeah, absolutely. I think that really did enhance the whole product overall, even if everything wasn't necessarily good, which we've seen. There's been some crappy nitros. There's been some crappy raws. So they've both not done excitingly well week after week after week so far. They both put on some stinkers. They both put on some good things too, though. And so we'll see that continue, I'm sure, as we continue on uh, week after week here with the uh, Monday Warfare show. But uh, we're going to kick things off this week. We've been starting with Nitro, and Steve just gave me shit because I told him we're starting with Raw this week. And I, I told him I don't remember the reason behind my madness here, the method behind my madness, if you will. But when I was doing the show notes, it just made sense to me this week to start with Raw. So this week, instead of starting with Nitro, we're going to be fair. We're going to flip sides. And this week, we're going to kick off with WWF Monday Night Raw. We're, uh, this week, we're doing two weeks of Raw, two weeks of Nitro, as I mentioned. We're going to be doing the Mondays of October 16th and October the 23rd. So obviously, we're going to kick off with the 16th here. October 16th, 1995, taped back on September 25th from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, So we're still in the Bill Watts era uh, because the taping here was in the Bill Watts era, even though we mentioned at the end of last episode that Bill Watts is already gone from the company. I also noted last week that when Bill Watts quit on October 13th, something else also took place on October 13th. I didn't really elaborate too far into that. That's what we're going to do here at the top of the show, and I think this is why I chose Raw first. Uh, It's reported that WWF Intercontinental Champion Shawn Michaels was assaulted by several servicemen outside of Club 37 in Syracuse, New York. Davy Boy Smith and 123 Kid were also involved in the incident. Smith suffered a black eye, but the kid was not injured in the fight. Shawn Michaels refused to press charges, and this is all according to the Melts and the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. So basically the story is Shawn Michaels was taken to the hospital with both of his eyes swollen shut, and had the side of his face badly swollen, and blood coming from his eye and and his ear. He needed 10 stitches both above and below the eye to close the wounds, and sew back on his eyelid. I remember hearing from multiple shoot interviews and things like that of Sean's eyelid hanging off his eye here. Uh, It was nearly ripped off, uh, completely ripped off his eye. And I know, I I can't remember if he was, um, the car door was slammed on his head, or if they were slamming his face into the car door, but I know he took quite a beating here. There was fear he also had uh, busted his eardrum at this point. However, uh, Michaels reportedly suffered no concussion, I find that hard to believe, or any broken bones in the face and was released from the hospital in the morning and flew home to San Antonio to recuperate. It was acknowledged on WCW Monday Nitro as well, with none other than Scheme Gene Okerlund uh, in what Meltzer called the sleaziest 900-line come-on to date, uh, which did result in record amounts of business, and so Mean Gene was racking in the revenue there. By doing this, but Mean Gene sold it as a WWF star came out of it on the short end of a fight with a fan. Uh, and of course, he pimped that on the Nitro episode and sold it for the hotline. It contrasted with the Raw version, which was Michael Michaels being jumped by ten thugs unprovoked. So obviously, they both tell have their own narrative. I don't know that either one of them were one hundred percent correct. Uh, what was your take on this? Do you remember this when it happened? And um, what, do you, what do you remember about this whole thing with Shawn Michaels getting beat down by the 9, 10, 12, 4, 6, 1 servicemen? Uh, the story changed so many times. The number changed anyway in the story. What was your take on this? Uh, when I was a kid, I just felt like it was a part of the show. Uh, I thought it was a work. 
I mean, I didn't know it was a work, but that's, I just thought it was something that is part of the storyline of something that for Sean to do something heading into the pay-per-view. I, I didn't think it was legit or something that happened that was real. Now, knowing what I know, uh, <laughs> I'm not surprised. Like you talked about last week, the Blues Brothers had enough of his crap. I'm sure, five, you know, maybe 30, 40 minutes in a bar with Shawn Michaels, you probably get tired of him too, uh, especially in 95, 96 in that time frame. It's just the attitude that he had. I, it's been a minute since I've read up on exactly how it happened, but I tend to lean towards the way Mean Gene <laughs> pronounced it over what Vince was selling. I don't think it was, he got jumped, but then in 95, I just thought it was a part of the show. I, I didn't think it was real. Well, that's fair. That's unfortunate too. You know, with the with the business that that wrestling is, that you have to question everything. At the time, I was uh, well into my teens, and I could uh, spot uh, spot a, a shoot from a work most of the time. I mean, obviously, those some of there were some work shoots in there that they did in the mid and late nineties that really uh, you know took, changed the business, changed the game. This was not one of them. Obviously, he really was beaten down. That part of the story is true from you know all aspects. Uh, he was he was worked over pretty damn good. Yeah, so when he showed up on that In Your House pay-per-view, it was pretty obvious that uh, he had been roughed up. I don't know that he was uh, roughed up enough to where he couldn't perform. It was probably on the safe side uh, to protect the eye and things of that nature, but it sounded to me, based on some of the things that I've read over time and heard over time, that had he needed to perform, he could have. Obviously, I, I'm not against him taking time off after an attack like that. It is what it is, and it's Shawn Michaels, and like you said, who knows? Could it have just been these guys got drunk and decided they were going to, they didn't like Shawn Michaels having long hair and looking like, you know, he looked back then. It could have been that. Could it have been Shawn Michaels provoking them? Just not un unintentionally provoking them. I, I don't yeah. mean he's actually talking shit to them, but just being Shawn Michaels, that's enough to provoke someone yeah. out in public, uh, especially after they had a few cocktails in them. <laughs> yeah. To me, like this seems like in baseball, it's Manny being Manny our boy Manny Ramirez um, it's just Manny being Manny that's how you explain things away for some of the stupid stuff he did uh this a lot it feels a lot like this is just Sean being Sean and I, I have a funny feeling if if he was in the ring with anybody other than Dean Douglas let's say a, a Razor Ramon match I, I feel like he would have been in the ring um I know uh, according to Shane Douglas and what he did when he went back to ECW he was afraid to get in the ring with him and things like that Shane Douglas is one of those types that likes to toot his own horn and things like that. But to me, I think I would believe him over I would Sean. And that's not the fandom in me of Shane Douglas. That's just from, our, from what I've seen of Shawn Michaels. If it's something that benefits him, he remembers everything. If it's something against him, well, that could have happened. I mean, the biggest letdown as far as wrestling DVDs I've ever seen was that face-to-face -face thing with, with him and Bret Hart that – yeah, with um, WWE released. He's like, well, Brett says it happened, and it probably happened, and I don't remember it. But then you watch the Click DVD, and he knows everything that happened with the Click. So it's that selective memory and stuff that he has that kind of just sways me to believe. Like, I don't believe a lot of the stuff he even says, even to this day. So I'm kind of going off topic here. But, yeah, I just feel like um, if he needed to or if it was his buddy in the ring, he would have been in the ring. Yeah. So Raw kicks off, obviously, this is taped before the incident with Shawn Michaels, so that's why that was spliced in to, I believe they mentioned it here at some point, but Raw kicks off, it's uh, dueling promos during the introduction between Isaac Yankum standing inside a steel cage, Bret Hart standing inside a steel cage, obviously no fans, this was recorded before the show, 
Jerry Lawler cutting a promo as well inside a cage. And they're basically hyping tonight's main event, which is going to be Bret Hart taking on Isaac Yankum, a rematch from SummerSlam, this time inside a steel cage. Uh, of course, the uh, rules re- stipulation was mentioned last week by Vince McMahon that if Lawler tries to get involved, tries to interfere in the match, that he will be strung up inside a shark cage. And so you know damn well that if you have a shark cage at ringside, somebody's going to go in it. And that, uh, that kicks off Raw this week. Uh, did you like the opening? It wasn't just, just the uh, normal music video, if you will, or whatever. Like They had these uh, promos in the ring kind of hyping up the match for later in the show. Yeah, I liked it. It kind of reminded me of, uh, I think it was the Sunday Night Slam or, or something like that when they had the, the something about that big blue cage with the lights down, kind of dark-ish. It yeah. just looks awesome. It looks like it's great production, and uh, I think that's what they did here. And I, I thought it was very well done. The Lawler and the Yankum promos were cheesy playing on the dentistry and things like that and yeah. stuff like that. And Bret Hart just did his normal Bret Hart promo, but I thought it was very well done, and it got you hyped for the match. I was excited to see the cage match. You yeah. didn't get those very often on TV. Yeah, I was excited to see the cage match, too, until I saw the cage match. But we'll get to that later <laughs> in the show. So this is the go-home show to In Your House 4. In Your House 4, the um, Great White North. It's up in Canada. It's going to be taking place. And uh, we already mentioned about the Dean Douglas-Sean match. We'll get into that later on as well. Vince announces at the top of the show that Dean Douglas and King Mabel were both fined $7,500 for their attack last week on The Undertaker on Shawn Michaels. We also learned The Undertaker's out with a broken face, a crushed orbital bone. Obviously, that they played into the six-man tag from the week prior. Of course, the, the real injury took place in a house show between Mabel and The Undertaker. Yeah, this is definitely Bill Watts-style booking here, $7,500 fine. Bill Watts loved to book in kayfabe and in shoot. So that was kind of cool to hear the, you know, you never heard anything about fines in the WWF. Bill Watts is there for a couple weeks. Guys are getting fined. So classic Bill Watts written all over this. Show kicks off with uh, Triple H in the ring with Doink the Clown. They randomly announced Fa 2 versus Triple H added to the In Your House pay-per-view. So it seems like a last-minute addition. I'm fine with that. I always love those last-minute additional uh, opening matches on those In Your Houses. Sometimes they wind up being the best match on the show. Yeah, uh, that wasn't a bad match, Spot 2 and Triple H. I think that's where the uh, F word makes it on TV, right, on the sign? Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> very astute, very astute. Uh, <laughs> Triple H dominates this match. <laughs> Doink is really little more than a jobber to the stars here. Doink gets a, a short comeback but misses a reverse cross body block, and the pedigree ends it in 3 minutes and 50 seconds. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of Doink the Clown. That's uh, Doink's final match in his uh, initial big long run there in the WWF. Doink is gone, only to return in random uh, vignettes when needed in, in later in segments in late, later years, played by a variety of people. But yeah, that's the end of Doink. Triple H pedigrees him right out of the WWF. So it started back in '95. Triple H burying guys and sending them <laughs> on their way out of the out of the business. Yeah, I was gonna say the same thing there, but uh, yeah, We're, we go backstage. We got Barry Horowitz teaching Hakushi about baseball because that's how you get Hakushi over. Not his talent. Let's teach him about baseball. Vince calls it the Americanization of Hakushi. <laughs> I don't know yeah. where Vince comes up with some of this stuff. He can't. It's like he can't leave well enough alone. Horowitz got over when he beats Skip, but that wasn't good enough. Let's make him a nerdy Jewish boy with a, a pocket pouch. Hakushi, he's over based on his talent. That's not good enough. Let's let's Americanize them. Yeah, pal. That'll get shit done. 
Yeah, this is stupid. <laughs> One thing I did notice, though, Barry Horowitz rocking a Ico Pro shirt in 1995. <laughs> Ooh, well, they, they were just getting ready to bury all that shit. that shit. Ah, they, I think they were in 95. I think that's when they gave up. I think that's when they buried like eight gazillion pounds of it behind Titan Towers or whatever the story is in a dump somewhere or wherever the hell it's at. So according to Bruce Pritchard and a <laughs> couple other people, like the amount that they buried is insane. It doesn't even sound realistic. That's how much Vince had produced that didn't sell. And uh, according to every wrestler that's ever talked about it, it tasted like shit. It was like the worst nutritional stuff they'd ever tried. <laughs> Interesting. But yeah, um, I, I didn't like what they did to Hakushi. Uh, like you said, he was getting over. He had the best match at SummerSlam. I know that's not saying much, but him and the kid was awesome. Uh, yeah. He had a really good match with Bret Hart in your house early on in the year. Just let the guy go. Let the talent talk for him. Instead, you try to Americanize him, and let's just, you just cut his legs off right out from underneath him. Uh, yeah, and it wasn't even like this was. Yeah, and it wasn't even like this was going anywhere as far as trying to give him a push. This basically made him a comedy act without any mm-hmm. personality, and that's not a, a slight on Hakushi. He doesn't need to be a comedy act or or have any personality as far as uh, comedic skills go. The guy barely speaks English, and you want to turn him into a. It seems like that's Vince's routine: bringing these foreigners. And then once their heel run is over and they turn babyface, they have to turn into a comedy act like uh, like Vladimir Kozlov or something of that nature. And I just pulled that name out of my ass. But <laughs> we move on with the show. It's PG-13. It's the P to the G plus the one and the three. Uh, we get a promo here from PG-13. They're going to challenge the smoking guns for the world tag team title match or for the world tag team titles later in the show. And the reason is they were already scheduled to meet the guns this week. But the Guns then won the World Tag Team title, so automatically, I guess, PG-13 randomly get a title shot. At least that's how it works this week in the WWF. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty cool promo, too. Uh, they just rapping and doing their thing, and I thought it was well done. No, well done. That was another tag team, Steve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't remind <laughs> me. <laughs> uh, Gorilla Monsoon announces that Yokozuna will be the one to replace The Undertaker in the match with Mabel at In Your House simply because Yokozuna aided Mabel in taking The Undertaker out of the match. Made sense to me, and it was huge. Not just in girth, but two big monsters, two big heels going at each other. It was it was kind of a sight to see until you saw the sight, and then you wanted to unsee the sight that you saw. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of the things that are going on right now in the WWF. It sounds cool on paper, and then you have to watch it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. I don't know how much you're going to get out of Yoko. Uh, Mabel's definitely way more athletic at this point compared to Yoko. But, uh, yeah, definitely a sight to see two big-ass dudes like that going at it. That's uh, that's interesting. And we go back to the ring. It's the WWF Tag Team Champions, the Smoking Guns, defending their titles against the USWA Tag Team Champions, PG-13, JC Ice, and Wolfie D. This was why PG-13 got that random win last week on TV, to get over this title match here this week. Sadly, they don't get much of a shot here, playing glorified job guys, brief heat on Billy Gunn, mostly resorted to comedy spots throughout the match, and made to look out of their league, I thought, Steve. Yeah, I thought it was a decent match. I mean, they did some cool-looking stuff. It it seemed like Vance figured out who was who a little bit better uh, compared (laughs) to last week. He he did it. J.C. Ice did a cartwheel, and then he just got smoked with the clothesline out of it. And uh, that's some of the comedy spots that we was getting. They they bumped like hell for the smoking guns, and I thought it was a pretty entertaining match. Oh, and don't get me wrong. For a TV match, it was perfectly fine. It was good. It was entertaining. I'll give you all of that. But 
when you're in dire need of tag teams, and they believe me, rest assured the WWF is in dire need of tag teams here in the latter half of 1995. This just made no sense to me. PG-13 were plenty good enough to fill out that division, but unfortunately, this is just a, a one-off, and we don't see them again till Nation of Domination, uh, which, you know, this becomes blatantly obvious as Vince still doesn't bother to learn who is who. Like you said, I, he did get their names right a couple times, but I think that was by mere coincidence, by accident. It was just more comedy than it was wrestling. So while the match was entertaining, I felt like it discredited them as actual contenders. Uh, eventually, the guns hit the sidewinder, and that ends it on Wolfie D. If you watch the, the match, J.C. Ice puts the exclamation point on the comedy because when he comes, tries to jump in the ring to make the save, he trips over his own feet, he trips over the ropes and lands on his face during the finishing spot during the three count. Billy Gunn gets the win on Wolfie D after the sidewinder match goes five minutes. Was the match entertaining? Yes. Was it what I would have liked to have seen? No. And I remember 1995 me who was watching USWA for a few years at that point was, uh, I wasn't happy with the way they were used here. So uh, it's, I'm, I'm kind of torn. I agree 100% with you, but I disagree 100% with you. Was the match good and entertaining and served every purpose it needed to on TV? Yes. Was it the way PG-13 should have been used? No, not in my estimation anyway. Well, I mean, just look at him. You knew Vince wasn't going to give him much of a shot, no matter how bad his tag team division was. He didn't even really have any tag teams outside of the smoking guns Yeah, that were actual tag teams. They was just kind of throwing together teams. You know, you had the Luger and Bulldog before that crap happened. The Blues Brothers just left. Owen and Yoko seem to be on the fritz just because of uh, some of the things that have gone down, like him missing the splash and things like that. Just playing the seats for that. I don't know of any other actual tag teams that are in the WWF at this point. So I understand completely where you're coming from. As far as PG-13 goes, they definitely could have been used. Uh, they could have been, I don't know if they'd have been on the level of the smoking guns, but right. I think it, with a few wins or maybe a non-title match here, since, you know, kind of do the Brain Busters and Heart Foundation at SummerSlam 89, well, they didn't have the belts when the match was signed. And then maybe give PG-13 like a sneak win. And kind of build up a week long, a couple week feud. Maybe you give them a pay per view match, but they didn't want any part of that, I guess. So uh, they clearly didn't care about the tag division at this point. It, right. it's, I, it's, a, it's a dumpster fire. And I mentioned well done, or you mentioned well done, in the, in intent, unintentionally a little bit ago. Now they had a job. They had a job for much longer than PG 13 here. And uh, they didn't have to win any matches, but they, they, got to, they got to keep their spot on the show. So I would certainly classify PG-13 as a better tag team than well done. And that's not taking anything away from Steve Dahl and Rex King earlier in their career as the Southern Rockers. But by well done, they weren't really getting it done. And uh, I think PG-13 was far more entertaining and far better workers here uh, in 1995 WWF. They certainly deserved more of a spot on the show than just jobbing to the guns and back to Mempho. But that's what we get here. And the show goes on yeah. and we, we, we go to a random arena a house show. I'm not really sure where the hell we are, but it's part of the world tour de force. I'm not sure if it was a superstars taping, a legit house show, what the deal was, but doc Hendricks is in the ring. He interviews Jim Cornette and the British bulldog, really a nothing promo for me. If you have any notes, feel free to chime in, but it's basically just bulldog talking up his match coming up with diesel at in your house. I, just the way Cornette was selling it. Uh, basically, uh, all the champions have been scared of Davy Boy, and that's why he hasn't had a title shot in the past. And then uh, he says that Davy Boy's gotten rid of all his friends, so no one can get in his way of getting what he wants, which is the WWF title. Just really good work from Cornette, but it was really nothing special, I would say. 
And now it begins. Our very first Ahmed Johnson vignette. Ahmed Johnson headed into the WWF. And right away, his first promo, this is all I hear. So that's pretty much Ahmed Johnson in a nutshell. I really didn't get a whole lot from this other than his mother raised him on minimum wage, which I, you know, I'm not really sure, you know, what that, what that story's about. I've, I've heard far. I think he was. <laughs> Go ahead. I was just going to say, I've heard far, far worse stories than that of guys that, that self-made men and self-made women in the world. Other than, you know, my mom raised me on minimum wage, but I don't know. What was your take on the, the initial introduction to Ahmed Johnson here? I didn't even remember these as a kid. I don't. I, I just thought he showed up in Survivor Series. To be honest with you, um, now uh, he was talking about honor, like going to school and getting in trouble, and then having to come home and have to deal with his mom and things like that, or his mom struggling to make ends meet, and then him going to school and doing everything he needs to do on his end to prove his mom's worth, so to speak. I thought it was it was decent, but half the things he said you couldn't even understand. Yeah. And that continued for his entire run there in the WWF. If he had just slowed down what he was saying, I think he would have came across a lot easier to understand. But he was very hyped up all the time. And just kind of, his tongue got in the way of his eye teeth, and he couldn't see what he was saying. Uh, Old Jim Cornette line there. This might surprise you for about five seconds, but then after you start thinking about it, it won't surprise you at all. Ahmed Johnson was going to be a pet project of Bill Watts. Bill Watts wanted to bring him in and push him to the moon and, after you think about that for five seconds, it, it makes a lot of sense, obviously. Bill Watson is never-ending quest to replace the junkyard dog. And here we are again, an African-American and Ahmed Johnson looked like a million dollars. And if you go look at the stuff he was doing in Global, moonsaults and dives and just the things he was doing uh, prior to the WWF, just insane. Yeah, I remember these vignettes very well. I, I remember knowing about him before he came in. I also remember that I think it's the week of the Survivor Series on Raw. He comes out and slams Yokozuna prior to the pay-per-view. That was my introduction to Ahmed Johnson in the ring. And that blew my mind at the time. And yes, I know Yoko has to cooperate. But uh, Ahmed uh, does a hell of a job working with Yoko for that slam. And it was just so huge. When they, like, that, I can't say it was the talk of the town at my house that night because I was watching the show by myself. But that was the big thing that stuck in my head as I went to bed that night. So. That was a huge deal. Ahmed Johnson yeah. was a huge deal. I bought into Ahmed Johnson when he first arrived onto the scene, and it took a lot of injuries and a lot of promos to turn me off. But I think I was sold on Ahmed Johnson for the first 10 months, at least up until the initial injury with, with the Farouk thing and everything like that going into SummerSlam 96. I was uh, sold on Ahmed up until then. I, I was intimidated by his character. I believed in it, I guess. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, the slam, I remember, and it got me excited to see the wild card match at Survivor Series. I was always intrigued by that match, even as a kid. I was like, Man, that's interesting. I wonder what they're going to do with that. Having heels, I mean, good guys and bad guys on the same team. So, And then Ahmed came out at the end of the show and does that body slam, and it's like, oh, crap, I can't wait to see more of this. So, yeah, yeah I was definitely a, a fan of Ahmed, uh, probably to about like what you said. He came back a little lazy and out of shape, but um, I'm sure we can talk about that more once he once we get to it. But uh, yeah, this is my first same time seeing. They stopped the vignettes, nothing, but it, it, that slam was everything for him. I think. Next match, squash match. It's uh, Dean Douglas in the ring over Joe Dorgan. 
Joe Dorgan would be the future and actually current at that time, Johnny Swinger on the independents. He would go on to be Johnny Swinger, did jobs as Johnny Swinger in WCW, worked in ECW near the tail end of ECW, got a push there. Simon and Swinger. Yeah. He was part of the tag team with Simon Diamond there. Yeah, you're right. I was trying to, I was going to say hot commodity, but no, that was Julio De Niro and all those guys. So yeah, but uh, Swinger here, I, I actually saw Johnny Swinger. He came down and worked uh, a three-day weekend of indie shows. I don't remember if it was 95 or 96. I know it was May of one of those years. And he worked with Edge and Christian. And uh, I think Rhino was even on those shows. So I got, I got to see a lot of those guys before they ever made it big. But um, yeah, I enjoyed Johnny Swinger on the on those indie shows that I saw him on. He was really entertaining, really charismatic. And with his build and being able to go out and actually purchase a real pair of trunks or, or tights here, I was surprised he didn't get more of a push in the business. But that's how things work out sometimes. It's during this match that Vince breaks the news about Shawn Michaels being attacked in Syracuse uh, by the thugs. Vince makes sure to call them thugs. They're not servicemen. They're, they're not soldiers. They're thugs. Uh, during the match, Shawn Michaels calls in about his condition. He claims he'll still be at the pay-per-view no matter what. Well, that's half true. He does make it to the pay-per-view. Wrestling is the different story there. Douglas is lazy. This is like, it's like he knew Shawn Michaels was going to call, even though this was recorded before the, the <laughs> accident ever happened, which makes this all the, wor- all the more worse. Douglas just kind of drops a bunch of knees on Dorgan throughout the match and then just pins him with the fisherman suplex. Match goes about two minutes, six seconds. And the entire match is Shawn Michaels on the phone. And for, for the better here, because this was a, a really, really bad match, even for a squash. Yeah, it was, it was nothing, to be honest with you. When I was watching it, I wasn't even really paying attention. I was just listening more to what Sean was saying. I'm with you. I'm wondering if, if Douglas knew that's what was, gonna, what was going on during this match. Well, I don't think so. Like, I'm because not giving these guys anything. That's what I was going to say. I would use that for an excuse, except this match was taped on the 25th of September, and the accident with Shawn Michaels didn't occur until the uh, 13th of October. So this is just Douglas yeah, yeah. phoning it in and having a shit squash match. This is Douglas not already hating his life decisions of joining the WWF in 1995. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, deal, and having to deal with the click. I don't blame him one bit. And, well, it's Doc Hendricks in the Slam Jam Room. Oh, God, the Slam Jam Room. I spent many nights in that Slam Jam Room. Uh, the show used to come out about 3 a.m. on the weekends after ECW went off. Uh, wrestling Challenge with Kurt Hennig and Doc Hendricks in the Slam Jam Room. I don't. I wish video footage of those shows existed. <laughs> so Doc's out here. I don't know where Barry Dedinsky is. He's taking another week off. He's shilling the dudes with the attitude shirt. I love how they keep offering to throw in a classic WWF video with everything you purchase right now. They won't name it by name, though. You know it had to be something shitty because it was just like a generic videotape. They didn't even have a case on it. To, so it's just promoted. They were trying to give away these damn things like, I'm surprised they didn't know offer you a bucket of Ico Pro with it. Right. I, I don't I'm I'm curious to know what the tape was. I wonder if anybody knows. If anybody knows, hit us up, let us know on Twitter and let us know if they bought a shirt from this time and what tape they got, if they can remember. I'd be interested to know which one it was. So after that we uh go back to the arena and we see the big blue cage being constructed between some random clips and highlights of Brett and Yankum stuff of the In Your House Four card rundown. That included a Goldust promo, a quick Goldust promo here on Marty Jannetty. Goldust getting ready to make his debut, or should I say his premiere at In Your House. 
Paul Bearer promo. Uh, he discusses Taker's crushed face, basically. I'm sure The Undertaker will be back looking for a revenge here on King Mabel in short fashion. And it's off to the cage match. I'll listen to your take first before I run anything down on my end. Oh, man. It was pretty sloppy. It wasn't very good. Yeah, so when it comes to this match is real sloppy. And if you go back and watch like the SummerSlam 94 match with Brett Owen, this match is definitely nowhere near as good as that. But it shows a trend of what Brett likes to do in these matches. And it's a lot of trying to escape and pulling people back in and and all that. Like he, he takes advantage of the going over or through the door a lot. And it, it, to me, it takes away from it. So I, by default, uh, I think this was the best part of the show. I, I really love, I'm not a huge fan of Jerry Lawler and what he was doing at this time. I thought he was annoying. This, he didn't overstay his welcome as far as what he was doing uh, with the nosebleed and the shark cage and things like that. I thought it was really well done. Lawler was hilarious for the most honestly, part. Yeah, honestly, uh, I thought he saved this match, to be honest with you, from my end. Yeah, and it's mainly the main reason why I like this segment is because of Lawler. Um, but yeah, Brett, I love Bret Hart. Uh, he, he's one of my favorites. But his cage matches, especially the big blue cages, he tries to escape way too much, and for some reason that just takes it away for me. So here's my take. I took a bunch of notes from the match, so I'm going to break down the match a little bit here. Uh, it looks like Bret Hart's trying to win early, and I should mention that if you guys don't know by now, back then there was only two ways you could win a WWF cage match, and that was either escape over the top of the cage to the floor or through the door. There were no pinfalls or submissions unless there was some specifically stated rule, which really didn't happen up until this point anyway in the WWF. But uh, Brett looks to win early. The referee's Tim White for the match. Tim White can't seem to find the key to the door, the key to the lock to the door. It doesn't seem to fit. And we cut over to Jerry Lawler sitting on commentary with Vince, and Jerry Lawler has the original lock that was supposed to go on the door hiding under his crown. So, there, you know, there you have it. It's uh, basically Lawler screwed Brett out of getting through the cage door, but he also screws Yankum. So it's almost like, well, how did you know it wasn't going to be Isaac Yankum wanting to go out of the door for it first? Lawler could have very well screwed Yankum there. Kind of a, a hole in their plot line, but it is what it is. It's wrestling. You can't look too deep into something like that, I guess. Uh, so now you have to climb over to win. The only way to win at this point is you must climb over the top of the cage. So Brett can't escape through the door, so it's back to action. Brett finally winds up putting Yankum in the sharpshooter, holding him down, and he looks to climb over the cage. This time, Jerry Lawler climbs up the cage to stop Brett from climbing over. So now Lawler has interfered, and now Lawler must go in the shark cage. So out come the WWF officials. It's Dave Hepner, the number one Frenchman, Rene Goulet. They lock Lawler in the shark cage for interfering and raise him above the ring. Tony Gurria just stands there watching, you worthless fuck. Lawler picks a scab on his nose. He starts bleeding his nose. Lawler's told the story that with the nosebleed up in the shark cage during this match, even though Vince plays it off, Vince McMahon wasn't, didn't okay this in, uh, prior to the match. He didn't know about this. Lawler had gigged the inside of his nose so that he could rip the scab off and have a nosebleed. Kind of a comedy routine for Lawler during this match. So I thought that was kind of cool that Vince didn't know about it and Lawler kind of went ahead and did this on his own. I'm sure back then Lawler just claimed it was a real nosebleed. Vince didn't question it too much. Uh, what did you think about the nosebleed? Did you find it humorous? Did you find it stupid? I mean, I remember when I first saw it, I, that might have been the first time I was privy that high altitudes cause nosebleeds. I'm not, I'm not really sure, but I, uh, I don't know. When I first saw it, I thought it was a big deal. Yeah, I liked it. Lawler made it a point to say he's afraid of heights and that he gets nosebleeds. He was kind of hinting at that the whole time. 
so I, I really enjoyed it. Even back then, I thought it was hilarious. And like I said, I'm not a huge fan of Waller as far as his comedy and stuff like that. But the, tonight on this show, like he, he knocked it out of the park. He, he was really, really entertaining. Yeah, but this match itself, the match, just entirely too long. The teases of climbing out didn't have the emotion or drama needed. And as you pointed out, they did it quite a bit. And without the crowd really behind it, it made it even worse. Nobody really cared a whole lot. This was the end of a four-hour taping, and the fans were done uh, once this you know, match started to drag. They got their fill, and the only blood we were getting was Lawler's nose, which he didn't you know, even run by Vince, as I pointed out. So we weren't going to get any blood here in the cage. Obviously, that was, you know, that was clear from the get-go. Uh, and I won't even get started on the shameless scroller at the bottom of the screen, mid-match, begging people to dial the 900 number for more info on Shawn Michaels' attack. So both Mean Gene and the WWF are trying to make money here off of poor Shawn's attack. I shouldn't really say poor Shawn, but Shawn's attack here. So Brett finally gets the big comeback in. Lawler tosses Yankum down the key to the door, finally. Yankum starts to go for the door, but Brett puts a stop to that. It's the five moves of doom. Literally, he does the five moves of doom. And Brett escapes the match. There's about 15 and a half minutes shown in this match. There wasn't anything wrong per se with this match other than maybe a little too much climbing up and down, up and down, but it was maybe the most boring cage match I can think of off the top of my head anyway. Just entirely too long for the guys involved and the story told here, I I wasn't buying it. Felt like something they'd do in a dark match. In fact, I kind of wonder if this was originally scheduled to be the dark match on the taping. These are the kind of matches they would do for dark matches, and they kind of put it on TV because of Nitro. I don't know. This just uh, this would have been ten times worse without Lawler, though. I'll tell you that. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, pretty rough. One cool spot though at the beginning, Yankum like grabbed the top of the cage from the from the mat, like he pulled himself up to the top rope by grabbing the top of the cage. So that just kind of gives you an idea of how tall Yankum and slash Kane really is. Um, but yeah, other than that, like little things like that, if you enjoy those things, I mean, but that's about it. Like it was way too much of Brett trying to escape and, uh, getting caught. You only could do go to that well so many times before the match just becomes very boring and stale. And I think within seven to eight minutes of this match, it was at that point because he went, he went for the cage almost immediately within like first two or three minutes. So I was like, Oh, here we go. Um, yeah. And Yankum was not ready for this spot at all. No. He was not ready for somebody like Bret Hart. And certainly, not, rather, and certainly not with this character. No, no. I, I would much rather him have this long-ass view with somebody like Jean-Pierre Lafitte. Because those guys, I, could you imagine them in a cage? Oh, yeah. That would have been <laughs> that tremendous. Would have been crazy. I would have seen Pierre missing a top rope or a top of the cage cannonball probably knowing him. Crazy dude. Or he would have done a cannonball like front flip into the cage or a couple times, like he doesn't care. So that would have been way better, but yeah. Right. And for all you newcomer fans, fans that have only been watching wrestling for the last 10, 15 years or whatever, Jean-Pierre Lafitte is now the guy known as PCO, Pierre Carl Ouellette, um, doing, who does insane spots at a much older age. So you can imagine what he, what he would have done here back in 1995, given the showcase of Bret Hart in a steel cage match. But yeah, so. Oh my so thus, this match, you believe it or not, unbeknownst to us at that time, would finally conclude the nearly two-and-a-half-year run of the Jerry Lawler and Bret Hart feud. This would end it right here. And Bret finally moves on from wrestling the mid-card guys like Hakushi, the Pirate, 
the dentist. Brett will finally end up back here in the world title picture after after this cage match. So it kind of works out for uh, Bret Hart, not so much for Isaac Yankum, who basically falls off the face of the earth after this match. Yes, he's still around, but no, he's he's not pushed in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, thank thank God for that. I'm sure Brett was happy. I mean, the feud started off. I remember reading the Observer from '93 and. Lawler was like the the hottest act in town when he yeah. attacked Brett at King of the Ring, and then all that that shit happened with the lawsuit and stuff like that, where he got removed from TV, and that kind of killed all the momentum this feud had. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, just unfortunate, but they drug it out. It's amazing they got two and a half years out of that. Right. Uh, they closed the show with a little comedy bit: Vince McMahon telling Jerry Lawler that he's stuck up in the cage high atop the arena because uh, they're having technical difficulties. They can't seem to lower the cage right now. And that's pretty much how we, uh, in the show. And the only other note that I didn't keep here, but I did notice during the show, the shark cage actually had an earpiece attached to it. It was already hanging down when Lawler was placed in the shark cage. It was almost like they knew that Lawler was going to get thrown in the shark cage and they wanted to make sure that he would remain on commentary. I thought it was funny that Lawler wound up having an earpiece and, and a microphone attached to the shark cage. I, you can see it hanging when they go to place them in, inside the mm-hmm. cage. So, yeah, but that's it to close the show. And uh, what's your raw segment of the night? I put down here PG-13 was pretty fun, but I think I'm just going to have to go uh, with Brett and Isaac Aiken, just mainly for Jerry Lawler and his antics. Yeah, and I thought for sure it would have been the cage match for me, but no. I want to give it to PG-13 for getting a title shot, but I may have to give it to Lawler's bloody nose. I, I really don't know. Triple H ends Doink's career, so that's a plus. I guess I do go PG-13 in the guns for entertainment purposes only, I suppose. Uh, Lawler gets the MVP trophy for the show. If I can just give out a trophy to a one-man show, I, I, I would give it to Jerry Lawler here. He really ran that cage match. It was He was more entertaining than the guys in the ring, which is just sad to say, but uh, completely lackluster cage match, bell to bell. It's a toss-up here. Like I, if, if I'm talking match... I'll go with the guns versus PG-13. Like I said, entertainment purposes. It's only a five-minute match. There's not a whole lot there. But this cage match was just so long and drawn out and boring and bland for me. Yeah, I mean, Lawler made it. So, I mean, I guess I can kind of give, like I said, the MVP trophy to Lawler if we can do that. But that concludes Raw, and we'll move over to Nitro. It's WCW Nitro for October 16th. They're in Albany, Georgia at the Civic Center this week. And we get a clip from WCW Pro. How often do you get a clip from WCW Pro on Nitro, nonetheless? Never. It's probably the one and only time that it happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, this is probably like the first angle on Pro in five years. And it's just Ric Flair out there. He's trying to recruit Sting in his quest to take on Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman at Halloween Havoc. Sting seems to agree, but he's very leery and warns Flair not to swerve him, bro. Don't swerve me, bro. So it's just, I thought it was funny hearing Sting use the word swerve. Uh, I had to do a double take because it was 95 and I knew Russo wasn't there. But St- Sting warns Flair, don't swerve him, and he'll back him up. Uh, the story there is is that there was no swerve originally planned. They wanted Ric Flair to turn face. Ric Flair does not want to turn face. Also, Sting wasn't keen on this, and I don't blame him because he feared that if he agrees to this, he looks like an idiot. Uh, you know, getting turned on by Ric Flair. So neither guy really wanted to go into this uh, doing what the other guy wanted them to do. So Sting would have liked to have seen, uh, not been turned on, and Flair would have liked to have done the turning. Uh, so 
one of the guys gets their way. We'll see what happens when we get to Halloween Havoc here because we're, we got that planned for a special watch along. We'll get to that at the end of the show. What did you take on this? Did, did you? I remember back then, and we won't get into this because I don't want to spoil what's, what's to come, but I remember back then thinking Sting's a fool if, if, he's, if he buys into Ric Flair's stuff, but then obviously this Nitro sells you on trusting Ric Flair. Yeah, to me, like I'm with you. You knew where this was going. How can he be so stupid? <laughs> That's how I felt even back in 95. I'm like, there's no way. Yeah, I don't want to spoil anything either, so it kind of makes it difficult to talk about. But yeah, I feel the same way you did even then, even back then. Our first match is originally scheduled to be TV champion Diamond Dallas Page with the Diamond Doll Kimberly. Oh, how beautiful was she looking here? I almost want to pull out my uh, Missy Hyatt boing for the Diamond Doll here, but uh, no Max Muscle. Max Muscle might be in trouble, and that's because we go to a pre-match clip from WCW Saturday night where Johnny B. Bad punches the lights out of DDP after learning that it was DDP or Max Muscle and or Max Muscle who slit all four tires. They do the all four tires bit. Of course, like we mentioned on the last episode, that was a uh, recreated from a Georgia Championship Wrestling segment involving Austin Idol and the Freebirds where Michael Hayes had slid all four of Austin Idol's tires and uh, kind of gave it away. And uh, Idol, Idol catches him in the, in, the, in the promo, giving away that it was him involved. And so that's what happens here. Max Muscle gives it away to Johnny B. Bad during the promo from Saturday night. Johnny B. Bad finds out that it was DDP behind it, costing him from taking on Sting for the U.S. Heavyweight Championship. But I still don't understand the, the story behind that or what initiates that or why DDP was so concerned with Bad getting that title shot. Maybe I'm missing something. But yeah, so DDP gets laid out on Saturday night, courtesy of Johnny B. Bad. We have no Max Muscle here. We do have Kimberly, as I mentioned. Johnny B. Bad out, looking awesome, man. I, this is my favorite era of Johnny B. Bad when he started taking the risks in the ring, uh, flying around, doing the backflips, the somersaults over the top rope. He was really, you know, just really looked well put together body-wise and throwing the Frisbees out. He's got the Bad Blaster. I forgot about the Frisbees until I saw him come out and toss them into the crowd here. I had completely forgotten about the Frisbees. Yeah, I've always been a fan of Johnny B. Bad. Uh, he has a great look. He's, he looks different and you can tell he really cared about his gimmick and how he was, how he looked. He had the elaborate capes and the headbands and the matching tassels and the knee pads. Like he was decked out. He had the whole nine. Yeah. He was invested. um, Yeah. He was definitely invested and it shows you can tell when somebody cares. So when somebody cares that much to go through those links, and he, he seems to have a different robe every day. And these things aren't, aren't your typical, like, Ric Flair robes where you just put on a bathrobe and bedazzle it to death. I mean, he has these huge-ass, like, capes, and he sticks his arms out, and it has a huge slogan on the back. And they're almost like the old Macho Man capes that he wore when he first came into, like, the WWF, and I'm assuming he wore them a little bit before he got there. Yeah, just really, really awesome presentation. And he backed it up in the ring. Like you said, he was trying so many different things and even the commentary was in on it saying that he has a new move he's working on. And it seems like they was saying that almost every time he's getting in the ring at a pay-per-view. So right. just really, really good, good stuff. I enjoy Johnny bad to get to, to answer your question. You know, maybe DDP wanted the U S title shot. So he's like, if bad's the, the number one contender, maybe if I take him out, I can get this shot. So yeah. And I kind of thought that, but it's like DDP's a little too greedy here for me. He just beat the renegade for the TV title. And now he, he wants to weasel into, the U.S. championship as well. But he's a heel, so they do those things. And he's DDP, so I, I know he's into self-promotion. Johnny B. Bad gets the win here on a disqualification before the match even starts. DDP clocks Bad with the TV title, knocks him out flat. 
the diamond doll does not look pleased. That would go on quite often. She didn't seem to really agree with a lot of the way DDP treated people. Uh, that goes back to the Dave Sullivan feud when Dave Sullivan had the hots for, mm-hmm. for Kimberly. So, and that continues here and it will continue until she does the turn eventually. But uh, yeah, the match goes on DDP then counts his own pinfall, drops down, makes the three count. And I thought this was kind of cool. He, he leans back on Johnny B. Bad. He's laying there. He counts himself three. He's beat Johnny B. Bad as far as he's concerned. And then he's laying there and just shoots the bad blaster up in the air. It was a great visual. I, I like that. Heel DDP there. Cool. Yeah. Good stuff there. In reality, the reason Bad hasn't wrestled here for the last couple of weeks is he's still sporting an injured rib, a rib or two here, and he couldn't work. He wasn't cleared to work, but he, he will be ready in time for Halloween Havoc is the story, which is why we're going to get the rematch there. But um, yeah, so Bad not cleared to work, but he's still out here doing as much as he can uh, just to continue the feud. So good stuff there by both guys. This was basically the beginning of DDP's big push. Uh, he had spent the summer getting over the Diamond Cutter. He beat Renegade for the TV title at Fall Brawl. And now he's being put in a long-term program here with Bad, which seems seems to go on forever. But honestly, it elevated both of their games, I thought. I think I don't know that DDP elevated Johnny B. Bad, but DDP was a great opponent for Bad to, like you said, create invent all these new moves, try out all this new stuff, his new style in the ring. And DDP really got elevated by working Bad and putting on these matches. I think it drew DDP to try to come up with a few ideas himself. And this may have been the most fun Johnny B. Bad stuff work-wise and, and Bad's entire run in the company, I think. And DDP, and, and, this, and you got to remember, they're opening match feud. They're not mid-card feud right now. They're not, and, and I'm not saying Johnny B. Bad isn't higher up in talent, but based on pay-per-views, they're the opening match, you know, the, the one that kicks off the show, the, high, the, the quality wrestling action, that get the people pumped. And that's kind of a hard place to be if you can't get the job done. I thought they got the job done over and over. And DDP's first ever real feud, if you if I'm not counting Dave Sullivan, so this is really DDP's first real feud. I don't know. I think I think they do a good job, and this was fun. I think so too. It almost feels like the booking team went to him and said, "Hey, you two are feuding for the next three or four months. Do what you want. You're going to be on the opener pay per views, and you just figure it out. Get the crowd hot." And Johnny Bad's match with Brian Pillman at Fall Brawl was the best match there. I thought it was really good. I love watching that match, even. Now, still, uh, it's a really good match. So I, I was excited for John to be bad. And I thought, and when I go back and watch all these pay-per-views, when I rented the tapes and stuff, I always enjoyed his stuff with DDP. I know that kind of gets parlayed later on to someone else. But, uh, yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't think it hurt him at all. And I, I felt like you said, like you said, they both went in the ring and they were free to do whatever they wanted. And I felt like they were just experimenting on new moves and really trying to one-up each other. John B. Bad would come out with a new move, then DDP would do new things. He'd come up with new ways to do the diamond cutter, and I thought they, they worked perfect together. Yeah, I think uh, they upped each other's game. Really well good stuff. Yeah, I think they just upped each other's game because DDP at this point especially, but really in any time, but at this point he wasn't going to help raise the bar for the other talent. I mean, I think it was more just competitive nature. These two guys just trying to go out there and do the best, like, I, I wasn't there. I'm not privy to any conversations that were had, but I could see these guys going, you know, backstage talking to each other saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do tonight to steal the show? Cause that's what it felt like, uh, time after time. I think so too. Uh, next match is Chris Benoit taking on Eddie Guerrero. And uh, I'm just going to say this again. If you guys want to know our take on Chris Benoit and the whole situation and how we're going to handle it, it's always there on, on episode three of Monday warfare. You guys can go back and listen to that. I'm not going to touch that anymore going forward. So it is what it is. 
Uh, we are going to call the matches uh, in an unbiased way as far as what actually transpires. And so on paper, Chris Benoit versus Eddie Guerrero, Steve, on a scale of 1 to 10 back then, like uh, wh- what would you have given this? Like I'm not the match, not the performance here, but just going in when you see Eddie Guerrero getting ready to wrestle Chris Benoit. Are you thinking show stealer? I mean, in 95, no, because – I didn't have access to ECW, so I had no idea the the level of talent that these guys had at the time. Was I intrigued? Yeah. But I don't think I was like, oh, my God, I can't wait to see this. Kind of like how you would be if you've seen their stuff in ECW or seen, you know, things like that. So, 95, no, I, I'm not excited, to be honest with you. Okay. This was all new to me. This sort of style uh, was all new to me. From what I've seen on the night shows leading up to this, absolutely, like, okay, these guys can work. This is crazy. They're crazy. It's different. It's new. So, yeah, I'm intrigued in that way, but I'm not like, oh, my God, it's Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit. Like, okay. I, they were just two guys to me at this point. Right. And I'd been following him a little bit with ECW tapes and reading the aftermags and stuff like that. But I remembered Chris Benoit from his first round in WCW, and he put on a 20-minute classic with two cold Scorpios. So I was very well aware of what he was capable of. And we've already seen what Eddie Guerrero can do here the last few weeks. And I was familiar with Hector and Chavo Guerrero, not so much Mondo. Uh, I don't really, didn't really see a lot of his work, but I, I was familiar with Hector and Chavo. And if Eddie wasn't the spitting image of Hector, it's, it's insane. Same mullet, same mustache. I mean, they could, they could have done a, a, a Kurt Angle spot like they did with Kurt Angle's brother with, with Hector and Eddie at one point. So this match is just next level stuff here from both guys, honestly. Eddie injures his hand early on. That plays a part in the finish. Guerrero with the awesome reverse springboard into a tornado DDT. Just amazing. Just springboards off the middle rope backwards, spins into a tornado DDT. Then there's a power bomb where Chris Benoit just destroys Guerrero, just drives him through the mat on this power bomb, and it only gets a two count. It's a sick looking move. Oh, yeah. I, I wrote it down as like a snap power bomb. It, it almost like how he snaps off his suplexes he did that in a powerbomb sort of fashion and it's just incredible you could tell these guys had chemistry and they trusted each other at this point and they were laying them in and it looked authentic and as real as it could get great shit it was a really good match so benoit picks him up tries a second powerbomb and why not after that first one but guerrero counters that one into a sunset flip and they roll right out of that move eddie gets up and throws a big hard right hand but re-injures his hand from earlier in the match, and Benoit immediately capitalizes with the dragon suplex, the full Nelson suplex. Good move. Hooked him in the full Nelson suplex, bridged up, got the win, 8 minutes, 38 seconds. Really good match. Mm-hmm. I'm glad they gave him time this week, uh, right. and they didn't interrupt it with stupid stuff like they did the week prior. So yeah, that's the issue early early on with WCW and the Cruiserweights. Are they going to get the time and are they going to get the attention of the commentary? Because if they're just in the ring working, but they're talking about everything else under the sun besides what's going on in the ring, then it it takes away from what they're doing. Because if it's not important to them, why should it be important to us? I agree with you, man, 100%. And the only thing I thought that took away from this match was the commentary after the match. Bobby Heenan busts his ass to put Chris Benoit over here. He gets serious for a minute and uh, he puts over Chris Benoit like, sells him hard, says he can beat anyone in WCW, no matter what their size is. Uh, basically point out he can handle any type of style, any size guy. And then Eric Bischoff just shits all over that with the sentence that follows, pointing out that they're getting ready to uh, create a WCW cruiserweight division. And Chris Benoit would be great for that. 
So Bobby Heenan says Chris Benoit can beat anyone. You know, that means Hulk Hogan, the giant, whatever. I know I'm reaching high there, but I mean, he said anyone. So, and the very next sentence is Eric Bischoff saying, yeah, man, he'd be great for a junior heavyweight division. Just totally shit all over this as far whether it was intentional or not. I don't care. It's just Eric Bischoff not paying attention to anything other than his, his money makers. Yeah. And I think it's also like you mentioned, I don't know if it was episode three or, or two. Uh, when Alex Wright ran out and Bischoff made the mistake of saying it's Lex Luger. So like you said, he's the booker, so he knows what's coming up. So uh, to me, like the cruiserweights, he knows what talent is as far as, okay, people are going to like this style. They can go out there and just perform in the ring. We don't really got to give them anything. They're going to get themselves over. That's how good they are. So it's like they don't invest like what Heenan was trying to do there. Yeah, he he doesn't really care to do that. He's like, you know what? Their ring work's gonna work for him. You don't have to do that. So uh, we're just gonna pigeonhole him in the cruiserweights and move on. It and you could tell, like we could see, like in the next week's episode of Nitro, I don't. They brought these guys in, but I don't think they had any idea what they wanted to do with them. I know right. they want to bring in the cruiserweight title, but I don't think they have any direction or anything for any of these guys. To be yeah, and with the, you. and I thought it was really, you know, he really went out of his way to do that because that's not Bobby Heenan's character on TV. He doesn't sit there and just uh-huh. put guys over in that demeanor. I mean, usually he'll say, "Oh, that's a tough guy," or if he's familiar with him, like a Ric Flair or somebody he's worked with before, obviously he'll 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 cater to them a little more. But it's mostly just a comedic style mixed with. He's anti baby face. He's pro heel. And here after the match, he sits down and he just kind of talks like an actual commentator for a minute and puts Benoit over and then Bischoff just puts him back in his place. So I, I just thought that kind of was kind of shitty. Speaking of shitty, you know, it almost feels like uh, it almost feels like Heenan was this is like the first time he's seen Benoit work. Yeah. And he was like overly impressed. So like he was just speaking his mind. And like you said, Bischoff just shit all over it. It's unfortunate. And speaking of shitty, call the hotline. It's Scheme Gene in the ring. He claims a WWF higher up has quit the company. That's in reference to Bill Watts. And a wrestler got beat up by a fan in a parking lot. Find out who on the hotline. 1-900-909-9900. Kids, get your parents' permission or don't because Scheme Gene just wants your money. Of course, Gene got a big chunk of change based on callers. Uh, I don't remember the percentage, but it's insane how much money he got mm-hmm. from each call. So he had no issues doing shit like this. It was very it was unscrupulous. Would that be the word? I, I don't even have issues with this. I don't understand what the big deal is or why people shit all over these hotlines. I mean, they're there for a reason. If you want to call and find out what's going on, it's not like he's lying. It's true. I mean, some of it is fake and works and... Well, stupid as, stuff like that. As it goes on, I'd it's rather he, call Team Gene and find out who got beat up compared to yeah. doing a fake ass call in line to see if OJ's guilty or not. Oh well, I agree. That's if you're gonna com- if you're gonna compare the lesser of two evils, then I'll, I'll agree with you. However, you know this goes on, and and there's very there's a ton of misleading by Mean Gene throughout the you know the next few years with the hotline. A lot of misleading and, and misrepresentation of what's actually on the hotline. Basically ripping people off, scamming people, and that's where he gets the scheme gene gimmick from as well on the WWF shows in '96. But that's it's that's Mean Gene Okerlund. It is what it is. He's a legend. You have to forgive things like this, I suppose. We get a promo with the Giant and Kevin Sullivan. Giant says he's going to beat Hogan in the monster truck, then drag him out of the truck to the ring and beat him again for the World Heavyweight Championship. I guess we'll see if that happens at Halloween Havoc or not. 
This weekend on Saturday night, it's Randy Savage taking on the Man of Question, who we will eventually know here as Hugh Morris. He debuts as the Man of Question. Bunch of question marks all over his singlet. I didn't really understand it when it happened, but I believe by his second appearance, he's already Hugh Morris. And do you know that it took me a year before I realized that Hugh Morris was, was meant to be humorous? I, I never put two and two together. And I think it was a World War III pay-per-view where he was in the ring, maybe he got eliminated, maybe he was doing a spot, but Tony Schiavone randomly goes, there's humorous. And I go, are you shitting me? That's what this fucking name was all about? Like, I, it, like it took me a year to even realize that. I just, I was so stupid. But yeah, uh, Hugh Morris on his way in to WCW Saturday Night. Now, I, I will preface that also by saying that, yes, I understood the Hugh G. Rection gimmick immediately. <laughs> My brother kind of put me up to the humorous name relatively quickly. He, he didn't watch wrestling a whole lot, but he was around, I think, once or twice when I was watching it. And he's like, Hugh Morris? So they're trying to go with humorous. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, my brother figured that one out rather quickly. And so I, I knew rather early on there. I guess I just never paid attention or cared enough. You know, and that, that explains, the gimmick, explains the gimmick of him laughing all the time as well. But yeah, just uh, if it wasn't for Tony Schiavone, I don't know when I would have put two and two together. It's kind of like me being aloof to the double cross ranch. By the way, it used to be said the double cross ranch in Amarillo, Texas, or, or wherever, a variety of places in Texas from time to time, way back in the 80s. I didn't put two and two together until maybe the early 90s. Double cross. Okay, now I get it. So, yeah, just sometimes things go over my head that are easy for other people, maybe. So, it is what it is. Also on Saturday night, it's the Disco Inferno taking on Alex Wright, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan meets VK Wall Street. What a barn burner that's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a show, I'm sure. <laughs> We follow that up, and it's Disco Inferno time. Disco Inferno back out there doing the dancing. And the match coming up in the ring is uh, Jim Duggan taking on Ming. And I was so curious to see what would happen if Disco Inferno would dance while Ming entered <laughs> the arena. But Disco's wise enough to recognize the music and step out of the way just in time before he's murdered. As Ming makes his way out, Ming wearing this stupid helmet cape thing. I don't even want to call it a helmet. Uh, that, that stupid giant dragon helmet thing is gone. Now he's wearing a cape with a mask built onto it, which equally looks stupid. Why can't he just come out to the ring and look like fucking Haku? That's all he needs to do. He, he rips people's teeth out with his bare hands. He bites their nose off. He, he gouges their eyeballs out and eats it or steps on it or whatever the hell he does. He's chopped palm trees with his bare hand. He's taken three shots from a police officer's nightstick and only dropped to his knees. And then he was praised by the officer for showing how tough he was. I mean, this guy really needs a fucking cape with a mask built onto it. That's going to get him over. Yeah, it's stupid. And I don't think that this was, yeah, and I don't think this was Haku's idea either. But uh, so Ming comes out of the ring. He's getting ready to take on Jim Duggan. Of course, Ming's coming off that big win over Lex Luger, if you want to call that a big win. It certainly wasn't a good match. Ming versus Luger is going to be held at Halloween Havoc, a rematch. So yay for that. Are you excited for that one, Steve? (laughs) In uh, 1989, maybe, but not 1995. I'll tell you that. You know Lex Luger wants that that win back from Nitro, so that's the only reason this match is even happening, people. We also learned that Randy Savage, I think they've already mentioned this in past episodes too, but Randy Savage will be taking on Kamala at Halloween Havoc. That match doesn't happen, it gets changed up, but yeah, Savage versus Kamala is what's slated for right now, and if Savage and Luger both win their matches, they'll face each other later in the pay-per-view. Match starts with uh, Ming jumping Jim Duggan here. Duggan was extra awful 
looked like complete shit here. His punches didn't even come close to connecting. This was really, really bad. Uh, Ming tries a reverse crossbody, which impressed the hell out of me. I didn't know when he got to that size he was doing anything like that. So looked pretty cool, Ming trying to do a, a reverse crossbody block. In the end, it's Ming with the crescent kick and the Asiatic spike. Not the Tongan death grip yet, just the Asiatic spike. He takes the thumb, drills it into the neck of Jim Duggan, the throat area, and Ming gets the win in just a minute and 52 seconds. Did you ever think you'd see Haku beat Hacksaw in under two minutes? I never thought I'd see Hacksaw do a, do a job. <laughs> he wouldn't <laughs> do it at all in the WWF. And I, I think Duggan just took the payday and came oh, to yeah. hang out with his boy Hogan. And uh, he's riding that as long as he can. I, I can't say I blame him. If you're going to get paid money, you might as well just do what you need to do and as less as possible. And I think um, Duggan, but, Duggan was all on board with that. I mean, he kind of started doing that practice right before he left the WWF, doing as little as possible. I, I love Ming, and I think it's more for the uh, the stories outside of the ring, not necessarily his work inside the ring. I'm not saying right. it's bad, but um, th- like you said, the hat gimmick and the stupid stuff, it's just like, let this dude be a badass, and he can get over on his own. He doesn't need all these gimmicks. So sadly, Jim Duggan got more of a crowd response here than the Guerrero versus Benoit match, which just shows you the power of characters and the WWF machine from years prior. So Duggan was just atrocious during his entire WCW run. I have no idea how he kept a job for as long as he did here in WCW. He walked in, not even trying. So you can imagine how (laughs) shitty he gets as the years progress here. Oh, yeah. And I I think uh, you almost have to say his best match was against Vader at Starcade. You know, that's not saying much at all. No, and that wasn't, yeah, that was. I I actually actually enjoyed that. He took that um, Vader bomb type move where he rolls him up and drops him on his face. Oh, the inverted power bomb. Yeah. Yeah. So he he did some spots and took some bumps for him and got dominated. And you don't, the way Duggan was portrayed in WWF, he never looked weak unless it was somebody like Yokozuna. So seeing Vader just destroy him like that was pretty big for me Yeah, uh, being, you know, seven or eight years old and seeing Duggan get destroyed like that. So it just put Vader at the top for me. And not I won't like, just, you know, Duggan's not Duggan, but you know what right. I mean? Well, I wouldn't just call that the best match he had in WCW. It was probably the only good match he had in WCW. And that was probably because he had to put up a fight. He probably didn't have much of an option in there with Vader like that. So Other than that, though, I mean, I don't know. I think every time Duggan came out, I groaned, not just because the match was bad, but because everything he did in the ring looked fake. Like, it was just terrible. The punches, the the stomps, the the knee drops, everything. Just everything was done at, like, half speed and didn't connect. And this just continued for years. I don't get it. I just don't get it. But, eh, eh, whatever. We'll move on with the show. We get a pre-tape interview with Hulk Hogan and Jimmy Hart. There's a black backdrop now, a Hulk Hogan logo in the black backdrop. Uh, black and white, no longer red and yellow because Hogan's sporting the black clothing right now, brother. He's got a new edge, brother. The backdrop looked silly. It looked like they took a colorized backdrop and changed the colorization to black and white. It just looked cheap and tacky. But Hogan talks uh, Giant and Sullivan at Halloween Havoc here, and that's pretty much all I got for this one. Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway from this is um, if you notice the last couple of weeks with his promos, he keeps on pushing that Jimmy Hart's his best friend in the WCW. He tells Jimmy Hart that Jimmy's saying he's worried about dealing with the Giant and that he's telling Jimmy Hart he needs to stay out of it and that he'll line him up and knock him down one by one. So they're really, really pushing this uh, Jimmy Hart is his best friend deal. 
and uh, heading into Halloween Havoc. And again, no spoilers, but it's interesting. You can kind of pick up on that now. And it's main event time on this episode of WCW Monday Nitro. It's a handicap match. Ric Flair made the challenge last week at the end of the show. Ric Flair taking on both Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman. And the story here is a weird one, and it makes even less sense moving forward, for me anyway, but we'll get to that when we get to Halloween Havoc. But at this point, it's uh, Arn and Pillman against Flair, two-on-one. Uh, we learned, I believe, this is, uh, they've, they've announced maybe Sting is his partner here, but Sting's not out there yet. And uh, Flair has begun trying to recruit Sting, as we saw at the top of the show, to be his partner in this war against Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman. But given their past, Sting, rightfully so, isn't buying Flair's sincerity. Sting smells something fishy, so to speak. And Missy Hyde's gone from the company, so it's probably Ric Flair that smells fishy. So Ric Flair holds his own early against both guys, takes the fight to the floor, uh, holds up pretty good outside as well. Uh, there's a really fun spot here. Arn Anderson whips Flair into the corner. Flair does the flip over the top rope, lands on the apron. Brian Pillman's standing there, so he chops the shit out of Brian Pillman. Flair goes back up top, jumps back into the ring, nails Arn, and then as he's landing and he nails Arn, he goes right into his strut. I forgot that Flair was this good in 1995. I, I've always, I don't know, I felt like Flair's work from 95 onward was never as good as, obviously, his work from the 80s and early 90s in the NWA and then the WWF, but he proved me wrong here. He, he was really getting into it, and he was doing a good job. It's a, a shame that he doesn't want to be a full-time babyface because he seems to be getting over here at this point in time. Yeah, I think so, too. And I, I, I just makes you wonder if it's because he's working with his buddy. I think that has a lot to do with it, uh, the way he's performing. They do a similar spot here that they did at Fall Brawl. When Brian Pillman interfered in the match between Arn and Flair at Fall Brawl, Pillman had jumped up on the apron and kind of caught Flair with, uh, for lack of a better term, an enziguri to the back of Flair's head, and that's when Arn nailed the DDT and got the win, pinned Ric Flair. Uh, here they do the spot again. It's Pillman nailing Flair with a kick to the back of the head on the apron, and Flair kind of stepping into Arn Anderson's big spine buster. And that's when Sting shows up, and he shows up at no better time. Uh, this is about four minutes into the match at this point. Sting comes in after apparently he's buying what Flair's selling. Uh, he believes Ric Flair's not playing him at this point because Flair's giving it his all against both Arn and Pillman now for four minutes of action. He's taking the spine buster. Flair gets some heat put on him, but makes the hot tag to Sting, who goes absolutely nuts on both Arn and Pillman. Sting presses Pillman off the top rope, and th- uh, this was uh, pretty dangerous looking. I mean, I think it's something Pillman probably called. Sting does a, a press. He presses Pillman off the top rope, and Pillman lands crotch first across uh, the top rope, and it looked looked like it could have been a rough spot. Oh, yeah. Definitely looked bad. So at that point, Sting had clothesline Arn to the floor. Then he crotches Pillman in dangerous fashion. Pillman goes tumbling out to the floor. Both guys are on the floor. The crowd is going nuts for all of this. The crowd's totally into this Ric Flair and Sting team, and Sting coming in on this hot tag. Anyways, Arn and Pillman wind up getting counted out as they're just laying there from these bumps. And uh, Sting and Flair get the win in seven minutes on a countout. I thought the finish killed the match here. And the hot crowd, the crowd was like just peaking when they just do this countout. And it wasn't even like an obvious countout. It was like happening without the announcers noticing it or the cameras really picking up on it. If you weren't paying attention, you didn't even really notice they were getting counted out. And they were just kind of laying there. Arn Anderson laying there from a clothesline. It just happened out of nowhere. It just seemed off to me. Yeah, I think what it is is they just don't want to give away a finish before a pay-per-view i think that's kind of what they're going with here but yeah i actually overall like the crowd was going nuts for sting and flair and i i really like this booking so you know sting said he'll be with the be his partner 
but he didn't really say that he was going to not be out there to start. Obviously, you don't want to give that away uh, if you're Sting because then maybe Flair is not going to trust you. So you say, yeah, I'm going to be there, and then I'm going to pull what you would pull on me if I if the roles are reversed. So I like that. And then he goes out there and busts his ass for, you know, four or five minutes. And Sting's like, you know what, he is. Maybe he is on the up and up this time. I'm going to go help him. I thought that was solid booking. And it kind of makes you question what you initially thought when you saw the pro segment. Okay, maybe Flair isn't going to do that this time. Maybe this is for real. They're going to be partners. Or maybe he's just going to help him get over on Arn and Pillman and then move on, go their separate ways type deal. And they've been building towards this. Like Flair's on an island by himself. Nobody can trust him. So I thought that was really good too. But again, I don't want to give anything away about what we're going to talk about uh, at Halloween Havoc. This kind of stinks. But I'll leave it at that. Yeah. And they basically confirm what you just stated here as the show closes. Gene Okerlund in the ring with Sting and Ric Flair. And basically Sting says he, he feels that Flair's performance out there in a two-on-one match earns Sting's trust. Uh, and they will be united as a team for Halloween Havoc in the tag team rematch. So, yeah, it's basically what you said, the story there. And honestly, for me, I remember going, I can, I can tell you exactly what I was thinking going back to 1995 here is, I wasn't uh, believing that Flair was going to be turning heel here. I, I fully trusted him, it, just based on the storyline. And, and the reason was, not only this here, because it made sense, Why would he? what, what was the point? The whole storyline going into this was, why would he turn on Sting? Why is this whole elaborate thing just so he can say he turned on Sting? If that was, the case, if that was what's going to be the case in Halloween Havoc, why would he have this long feud with Arn Anderson just to turn on Sting? It made no sense to me if that's what they were going for. Another thing was, it almost seemed too obvious. Sting was too concerned. He, he Baby faces don't know things are going to happen before they happen. So Sting acknowledging this before it could potentially happen automatically made me think that it wasn't happening. Baby faces just shit happens to them. They don't they don't call it in advance. You know what I mean? So I yeah, I, yeah. uh, I kind of bought into that the, logic. Right, based off that logic, it didn't make sense where it goes. But that's fish off for you. So what's your nitro segment of the night? I'm just going to beat you to the punch here for me. It, it had to be Benoit versus Guerrero. The tag main was good too. I thought it was really hot. So, you know, if anybody chose that because of the names involved, I, I'm not going to argue that. I just enjoyed the wrestling more, obviously, and Benoit Guerrero. But I thought the tag match, especially once Sting got down there, was very hot as well. Yeah, the crowd was super over for that, that main event. It almost kind of makes you want to lean that way just because of how entertained the crowd was. But I, I too, went with Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit. Uh, I thought that was a hell of a match. Everything was so crisp and clean. Really no mess-ups. Uh, the commentary was good. Just all around, just a very, very entertaining segment and match. I, I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah. Two really good matches on Nitro, and I love the Johnny B. Bad DDP angle, too. So naturally, on a, on a Nitro show that good and a Raw show that pissed poor, Raw wins in the ratings. WWF Raw does a 2.5 rating with a 3.6 share. Meanwhile, Nitro only does a 2.2 rating with a 3.2 share. That's really unfortunate because uh, anybody who tuned out of Nitro to watch Raw this week for the cage match really missed some good stuff. Yeah, I think uh, I want to say early on, Raw has a, does a better job of showing you what's coming up. Obviously, they tape stuff ahead of time so they can give you those little snippets and they know where they're going You know, for at least three weeks. Whereas Nitro, you don't really know what the main event is. I mean, if you told me that the main event like you're hoping people watch your syndication or your Saturday night, but if people only watch one show and it's Nitro, you need to have these matches announced 
the week prior. That way we know what's going on. I, I couldn't tell you what's going to happen on next week's night show based off of this night show. I don't know the card because they didn't announce anything. And uh, I think that, that really early on had a pretty big indicator on what's going on with the ratings, I, I feel like. Plus, yeah. Raw has Here, the advantage of tradition of being on Monday nights. But here's the kicker on the Nitros. If you go into the Observer's, Dave Meltzer knows what the uh, the next upcoming main event is or certain matches on the show. So I think they're they're released in in uh, maybe the lo- the local area, and they're just not announced necessarily every week on Nitro. There are weeks where they do announce what's coming up on the next week's show. This is not one of them. I don't know if they were running yeah. short on time or what the deal was here, but I don't know, man. Um, we do a lot. We at the end of each week, Raw versus Nitro, we do a little thing uh, I call the real winner. And that's not necessarily who won in the ratings. It's who me and Steve uh, pick is our real winner. And this week, I'm going to go with WCW Nitro. Even though Raw beat him in the ratings, WCW Nitro was way better. Raw just stunk, or it was just there. And uh, Nitro had uh, two solid, really great matches. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I'm going to go with Nitro as well for the same reasons. Uh, You really can't top that main event, and then you get a film Guerrero match. Yeah, hands down. And we fast forward a week in time. It's WWF Monday Night Raw for October 23rd. This episode is live in Brandon, Manitoba, Canada. But before we get to Raw, the previous night, October 22nd, was the In Your House Great White North pay-per-view. Quite possibly one of the, if not the, shittiest pay-per-view in WWF history. I won't say WWE because... They've had some stinkers in WWE, and I'd just have to go back and watch those in the 2000s before I could really call this the shittiest. But this pay-per-view only being uh, an hour and 50-some-odd minutes, uh, maybe I'd watch this before some of the other ones that go longer. First match was okay. Triple H over 5-2 with the pedigree. Then the mat- the show kind of slowly dissipates into boredom. Tag Team Champion Smoking Guns over Razor Ramon and the 1-2-3 Kid. Uh, the 1-2-3 Kid tried a cocky pin laying across Billy Gunn. Billy Gunn grabs him, hooks him for a crucifix. It's actually how the kid beat Ted DiBiase way back in 1993, the same uh, same spot. Post-match, kid throws a temper tantrum, so it begins. Uh, he shoves Razor, he attacks, goes after the guns. So the kid, showing tendencies of a heel turn here, kind of plays back into also his t- temper tantrum here, does, does him no favors, and it plays back into his lack of ability in his match with Razor last week on Raw, or two weeks ago on Raw. We saw the premiere of Gold Dust in a very slow, uh, plotting, and um, disorganized match with Marty Jannetty. King Mabel, double count out with Yokozuna in what Dave Meltzer called a uh, shittiest match of the year candidate. Uh, I'll use my terms, but uh, worst match of the year candidate, Mabel versus Yoko. And I think the match only goes four or five minutes. So think about that for a minute. <laughs> Shawn Michaels then comes out with his uh, boo-boo face. Forfeits the Intercontinental Championship over to Dean Douglas. Shane had to have been loving that. Unfortunately, probably wasn't because he knew what was coming next. Sean probably only agreed to drop the belt to Douglas because Douglas then had to defend the belt immediately against Sean's buddy, Razor Ramon. And of course, we are, if you don't know what happens there, you guessed it. Razor Ramon beats Dean Douglas for the Intercontinental Championship. So it's the title comes right back to the click. Another reason why Shane and probably a whole lot of guys uh, in the locker room, we're not fans of the click here uh, in this era. And then the main event, the British Bulldog over Diesel by disqualification before I get to the finish. Jim Cornette has went on record repeatedly as saying the shittiest match he's ever participated in, per- perhaps in the entire history of Jim Cornette's career. 
or I don't know if he says championship match or just match in general, but this was like, I don't remember the length of the match, but it probably went 20 minutes and 18 of those minutes was Bulldog laying on the mat working on, if you want to call it working on Diesel's leg, just applying a rest hold. Uh, it was easily one of the most boring matches I've ever sat through in my life. Yeah, it's but, uh, been a minute since I've seen it, so I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you anything that happened. But the uh, <laughs> the finish is uh, Bulldog screws with Bret Hart. Bret Hart's on commentary because Bret Hart's going to fight the uh, champion, I believe. Or maybe that's not even set up yet. But Bret Hart's on commentary here. He's moving back into the world title picture. And Bulldog uh, gives Bret a, a pie face or a shove or something. I didn't review this pay-per-view before we did the Raw, but I know it's something along those lines. Anyways, Bret naturally gets up and he attacks the Bulldog drawing a disqualification. This pisses Diesel off. I don't know why, because Diesel retains the title. Brett attacking the Bulldog gives Bulldog the win by disqualification. However, Diesel retains the title. This leads to Diesel confronting Brett, and uh, they go into a brawl as the show closes, which is probably the only entertaining thing on the show outside of maybe Triple H and Fatu. I remember reading a report. I don't know if it was from uh, Dave. In fact, here we go. I'm going to pull up this uh, report here from Dave Meltzer and The Observer here. In Your House 4 received a 1.3% thumbs up and a 96% thumbs down with the remaining 3% in the middle. A 1.3% thumbs up, Steve. That's, that's what the show got. And Dave wrote, just as the cameras faded to black, signifying the end of In Your, Ho- the In Your House pay-per-view show on October 22nd in Winnipeg, a disgusted Vince McMahon threw down his glasses and his headset and said the words, horrible as he started to walk to the back with Jim Ross. While a pull-apart brawl with Diesel and Bret Hart was going, still going on in the ring. So, so Vince is so pissed off at this show that he just gets up, leave, leaving in a rage while the, st- while the angle's still playing out in the ring. Seconds later, as the brawl ended, Diesel, the person Vince McMahon had planned to build the company around one year earlier, was being booed out of the building. Yet another in a long line of failed experiments in the quest to find a new Hulk Hogan. The virtually unanimous crowd reaction to Diesel after yet another unimpressive main event match seems to make it only logical that Bret Hart is destined. Basically, he's comparing Bret Hart to Ric Flair and WCW, where they don't want him to be the man, but they have to keep going back to him because he is the man. It was a two-week period that saw injuries to two of his key performers, Vince's key performers, the quitting of his top assistant, Bill Watts, his babyface singles and tag team champions being heavily booed, poor house show business at every stop, the debut of a character being groomed for the top echelon, falling flat, meaning gold dust, and among the worst matches and worst overall pay-per-view show in company history. That basically sums up In Your House for us, Steve. <laughs> uh, I couldn't say it better myself. And another thing, I know before we kick it off here with the Battle Royale, I'm not going to it's just a sad state of affairs of where the WWF roster is at this point. And I don't, and to be 100% honest with you, I can't remember who came out recently defending Diesel. I can't remember who it was. There was somebody that came out and said. Diesel? Um, Diesel? Diesel wasn't defending himself. Razor Ramon? No, it wasn't a click member either. It was somebody okay. in the office. I can't, I can't remember who it was. I want to say Jim Cornette's sticking out for some reason, but I don't think it's him either. But somebody said, like, you know, nobody was going to work in 1995 at WWF <laughs> as a champion. It, the business was so far down that it didn't necessarily matter who your champion was. It wasn't going to draw because wrestling just wasn't that important at the time. So 
I like Diesel, but yeah, it was a mistake. <laughs> so Raw kicks off with uh, out of nowhere. I don't know if they uh, advertise this in advance. I don't remember hearing it on the week prior, but show just randomly kicks off with a 20-man battle royal with the winner meeting Razor Ramon for the Intercontinental Championship next week on Raw. Uh, we see 18, 17, 18 of the guys in the ring already. Sid makes his way out. Marty Jannetty makes his way out. Isaac Yankum's the last one into the ring for some odd reason after just jobbing to Brett the week prior in the cage. We only get promos from Sid and Jannetty. They It seemed kind of pointless. Made sense by the end why Marty Jannetty got a promo here. But yeah, so Sid and Jannetty get promos. The bell sounds. The match gets going. The 20 guys involved, I'll give them all their due. I'll pay them respects here. Owen Hart, Marty Jannetty. Sid, Bam Bam Bigelow, Triple H, Fatu, Henry Godwin, Hakushi, Rad Radford's in there, King Kong Bundy's in there for a couple seconds, Aldo Montoya, Bob Holly, 123 Kid, Savio Vega, Duke the Dumpster, Kama, Jean-Pierre Lafitte, Barry Horowitz, Isaac Yankum, and Skip, the Body Donna. Uh, all that talent, man. <laughs> Back when Battle Royals were good. <laughs> I can sense the sarcasm. I mean... No, you, I'm, you, I'm being dead serious. No, no, I'm, I'm, de- I'm being dead serious. I mean, all that talent, when I was looking in that ring, that's when I enjoyed Battle Royals, uh, w- when you had talent you cared about or, or knew who the hell they were anyway. Uh, you know, obviously. Well, there's some of them. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm looking back over this again. Owen, Janetti, Sid, Bigelow, Triple H, Fatu, Henry Godwin, Hakushi, Savio Vega. I mean, uh, there's quite a few you know, names in there. Uh, Yankum's coming off of a, a match with, with Red Heart in the cage, um, Jean-Pierre Lafitte's been having great matches. One, two, three, kids. So, yeah, plenty of plenty of good talent in there. Yeah, I definitely wasn't being sarcastic. Well, I was going to say, like, this is a microcosm of uh, the issues WWF was having in 95. I mean, uh, <laughs> that talent's not very deep and not very good as far as drawing ability and what you would need to run a successful company. I think this is a pretty glaring shot of, how low they were as far as the ranks go. I'm not, I'm not knocking their talent or their ability in the ring. It's just, yeah, you may care about them because you love wrestling, but the average fan, they're not going to care about half of these guys. Maybe Owen Hart, Sid, one, two, three kid, I guess. The majority out of these 20 people, like, to be honest, when I saw I just thought Sid was going to win. I thought this is what led up to that angle that happens later on, but I quickly realized it wasn't going to be him. I forgot about this one, but yeah. I didn't think the, the, the talent level was that great here. Yeah, I think uh, the the issue here is, is there's a lot of great talent that were mid-carters because they weren't utilized properly is, I think, the issue here with a lot of these guys. But anyways, I was really excited. Uh, King Kong Bunny was eliminated about three seconds into the match, so I knew he wasn't going to win, so big pop there. I didn't even realize Bunny was still there in October of 1995, so that kind of caught me off guard <laughs> seeing his big, big fat ass standing in the ring when we got going here, but... Uh, we go to commercial break, and we come back with only seven people left in the ring. It was like six or seven eliminations during this commercial break. Uh, they couldn't have waited till they got back and then did the uh, old quick shit can off the you know every side of the ring. I know we're live here, but it, it just, I hated that shit. I hated when they came back from commercial breaks and one guy would have been eliminated, much less like six or seven, so not really cool. Uh, they did their best to try to go back and replays and show most of the eliminations. We wind up with the final six being Owen Hart, Psycho Sid, Marty Jannetty, Savio Vega, Bam Bam Bigelow, and surprisingly Jean-Pierre Lafitte. Bigelow dumped Sid, which was uh, a big deal, I guess. Bigelow kind of started really falling down the ranks here, courtesy, if you believe it, of uh, the click. Uh, but he eliminates Sid here. Well, 
that baby face turn just didn't work out for him. Not like it, not like the uh, 1987-88 baby face run, that's for sure. But uh, Bigelow dumps Sid here, and we go into, yes, a second commercial break during a battle royal. And we come back again, and now Bam Bam Bigelow's gone. Uh, from that last commercial break, we, they go back and show footage of Jean-Pierre Lafitte dumping Bigelow. We wind up with, like, what are we down to? The final four. Marty Jannetty does a head scissors, uh, skins the cat back in. Savio Vega tries to eliminate Jannetty. Jannetty skins the cat back inside, grabs Savio and head scissors, pulls Savio Vega out of the ring. Jannetty skins the cat back in, backdrops Jean-Pierre Lafitte out of the ring. So now we're down to Marty Jannetty and Owen Hart is the final two men in the ring, and Jannetty has just eliminated two guys, so he's really got the uh, momentum working in his favor here. And like I told you, when he came back a couple weeks ago or whatever it was, uh, I was really excited to see him back. So seeing him in a position here of the final two guys in the ring, I was very excited. And it's uh, back and forth, a lot of teasing of both guys going out. Owen goes over the top rope. Fun spot there with Owen. I, I don't know if you uh, remember back to the match. Owen goes over the top rope. He's on the apron, and he's grabbing hold of the middle rope, and he's leaning back as far as he can without actually taking the bump to the floor. Something could have went wrong there, and Owen could have accidentally eliminated himself, but it was fun watching Owen do the spot. Yeah, yeah I thought it was hilarious. And he went all the way down from the top rope to the middle rope to the bottom rope. Just, I think that was just Owen being Owen and having a good time out there. So Jannetty winds up getting thrown through the ropes, uh, and he winds up going after Jim Cornette because Cornette kind of sneaks up on him. Actually, he's going to whack him with a racket. So Jannetty gets hold of the tennis racket, and he starts stalking Jim Cornette around ringside and runs right into the Bulldog who comes flying down to ringside. Bulldog just plows over Marty Jannetty for no other reason than he's uh, Owen Hart's brother-in-law, I guess. Jannetty thrown back inside the ring. Owen eventually pitches Marty Jannetty out. Whole battle royal went something like 20 minutes. What did you think of it as a battle royal overall? Uh, like you said, I mean, when the, half of the, the majority of the eliminations happen during the commercial, so it kind of takes away the, the entertainment value of the, the battle royal. Uh, I thought the guys in it worked, worked hard and there was a lot of action, but um, you want to see the, the eliminations because that's what matters. And when the majority of them are happening in commercial break, you just really can't get invested in the match. Owen and Jannetty did awesome at the end. I thought it was some cool spots, like you said, with the ropes. And Jannetty was a really good person at getting the crowd behind him and making you believe that there's a chance. He was one of those really good talents at doing that. All in all, it was good. It just would have been better if we'd seen some more eliminations on TV instead of through commercial. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I just, um, you know, the, the whole finish was pretty exciting, though. I thought uh, Owen and Jannetty did a really good job. We get a ringside promo with Owen Hart directly after the match, and what else would he say? But he's going to become the next Intercontinental Champion as he gets a shot at Razor Ramon's newly won title next week on Raw. And, well, it's handsome Doc Hendricks again at Slam Jam. He's talking the Survivor Series. He announces the wildcard match here this week featuring Ahmed Johnson. Ahmed Johnson going to make his in-ring debut in basically what would be a, a main event type match at a pay-per-view. Uh, that's a pretty huge deal to to be thrown into a match with all of these guys, uh, Sid and Yokozuna and Owen Hart and Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon. A pretty big deal here for Ahmed Johnson. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of those things that they did to make you be invested in Ahmed Johnson from the get-go. So he's doing these little promo vignettes, and then you see him in there, and what you're about to see here, he does his promo where he says, yeah, Shawn's back, and, if Bulldog or Sid try anything, he's going. They're going to know what the true meaning of medieval means, whatever the hell that means. But uh, yeah, so it makes you okay. This dude, this dude's going to be a big deal if he's automatically coming in and he's involved in this match. 
So I thought they did a good job of hyping him up and making him seem important from the get-go. Yeah, and as you mentioned here at the end of the Slam Jam, we get a promo from Ahmed Johnson that uh, when something like this, um, and Sean, I got your back, G. I'm pretty sure that it's yeah. pretty much something like that. So, yeah, Ahmed Johnson going to team up with Shawn Michaels and company at Survivor Series. I'm looking forward to his uh, debut here on Raw, though. I, that's no sarcasm at all. I, I can't wait to relive that moment where he slams Yokozuna here in the next few weeks. Uh, Bob Backlund up in Canada campaigning for presidency of the United States of America. Uh, only Bob Backlund. And only in Canada, <laughs> I guess. Bob Backlund running for United States president. Shilling up there in Canada. We'll see how that turns out here as we're just a, <laughs> a couple of weeks away from determining a new president. I don't think Bob Backlund was even on the, uh, the camp. The ballot. I don't yeah. think he was on the ballot. I, I don't think he was on the ballot. There you go. Next match on the show is the debut of Avatar, which is Al Snow taking on Brian Walsh. Um, I had known Al Snow from watching Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Al Snow actually came in kind of perfect timing. Um, not perfect timing because of what happens, but Eddie Gilbert basically splits on Jim Cornette in the middle of a push. And uh, Eddie Gilbert was um, working for Smoky Mountain for a brief period there with Unabom as a sidekick. Unabom is uh, now Isaac Yankum here in the WWF. And Gilbert leaves and splits to Puerto Rico, I think, for a job as Booker or something like that. And then, honestly, within a uh, matter of weeks, Eddie Gilbert passes away at the beginning of 95. So he leaves Smoky Mountain, goes to Puerto Rico, and passes away. Al Snow winds up taking Gilbert's spot as Unabom's cohort and Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and thus the hilarious comedic heel promos of Al Snow begin, and I really enjoyed his stuff. But Smoky Mountain Wrestling is getting ready to go out of business here in November of 95, and so you're going to see a lot of these guys start to transfer over to the WWF. We've already seen Isaac Yankum make his way over. Now here's Al Snow getting a push as Avatar, where the gimmick is he comes down to the ring without a mask, and then goes into some sort of a ritual and then places the mask on his face to become maybe, a, I guess, a samurai or a warrior or something of that nature for the actual match. What did you think of the gimmick? I can only, I don't remember it as a kid, so I can only speak to it now. And I think it's a really clever idea. It seems like something Al Snow would do. He does have that creative sort of mind. I thought it's really interesting. Uh, you know, an avatar is just it is what it is and he puts the mask on and he transforms into something else now like it even has a bigger meaning avatar you know your your forums your any everything you have facebook twitter whatever your icon is your is who you are who you remembered as and um it's called an avatar so I, to me like it means it's pretty cool so he's just putting on his gimmick when he gets into the ring. Uh, he's turning into that avatar of how you remember him. And then once he's done wrestling, he takes it off and he's back to being himself. So interesting idea. Um, it's cool looking. And it's just unfortunate what happens here for him. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's kind of funny. I can kind of pinpoint what I did the weekend following this Raw because I remember discussing Avatar with my brother who didn't live with me at the time. And he came over. We were going to go, I believe, to a haunted house uh, that weekend. And I started telling him about Avatar. And uh, we pull out the old Funkin' Wagnall encyclopedia to look up what the hell is what the hell is Avatar. I mean, it just seemed like a, a really weird name. You really didn't hear that word up until this point. Uh, there was no Avatar movie. There were no Avatars online. So, yeah, it was, uh, what the hell is that? So 
I, you know, we, that was our old Google, the old encyclopedia. Um, I don't remember what the definition was, so don't ask me, but I, I just remember doing that that weekend. So Al Snow comes out. He's wearing like a Hayabusa-style mask here. Uh, Brian Walsh, I've seen him in small doses. I always thought he was a pretty decent job guy, but uh, he just could not hang with Al Snow here. Uh, Snow slips on uh, a couple of spots. He slips on the ropes. He uh, would go in future years and blame it on all the baby oil and things and sweat on the ropes from the Battle Royal that took place prior to his match. So uh, he tries to do some decent moves here, but winds up kind of blowing some spots. Unfortunate for his debut. He did a cool move where he kind of did a double springboard in the ring into a moonsault, and then Walsh rolls out of the way and Snow misses. I thought that would have been a perfect move to hit in order to get over. Uh, but the, the finish actually sees Snow do a standing moonsault, and then he actually stands on Walsh's torso, jumps up in the air and performs like a, a standing frog splash. Really, really weird and lame finish uh, compared to all the other moves he was trying to do in the match. So the match goes about yeah. two and a half minutes with Avatar uh, going over Brian Walsh. The match was filled with flubs. Um, but as they mm-hmm. conclude the match, Al Snow removes the mask once again as he's removed himself from this uh, samurai or warrior fighting style back into just a man. What, what did you think overall of the presentation by the time this was over? I thought, I thought it, was, it was cool. It stinks that he slipped up and messed up quite a few times. That's not going to be a good look, especially on live TV when you got the competition breathing down your neck. And kind of, you know, you turn on WCW and you see guys like Benoit and Eddie and they're doing all this crazy stuff. And then all of a sudden Avatar shows up and he's kind of doing similar things. So it could also have been looked at as like a copycat type deal here. But uh, it's just unfortunate. Another thing that I didn't really care for about this match is that Brian Walsh got quite a bit of offense in on Avatar. I feel like in a debut, that shouldn't necessarily be the case. Uh, it just makes you look a little weak if you're getting handled like this. We should, why should we care about you if you're giving up a lot of offense in your first match? Like, we can't take you serious at all. At least that's how my brain works when it comes to wrestling. I feel like on a debut, uh, you should be kind of dominating and not giving up too much offense maybe four or five weeks in but not not initially i think you really need to set the stage for what you are and what you're going to be and then then you can do that once you're established a little bit but right away uh, i think that's a bad look yeah and i did like the premise of the whole gimmick the mask transforms him into a warrior a fighting warrior then he removes the mask and he becomes the man again my thoughts my overall thoughts were it looked cool i was pumped when i realized it was al snow walking his way down to the ring down the ring I was pumped that Al Snow was getting a job in the WWF because I loved his work in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, his stuff against Ricky Morton and things like that. And if you guys uh, have an opportunity to, I'm sure it's got to be on YouTube everywhere, but other places too, Al Snow's work was second to none on the independents. Uh, There was that level of those Japan workers like a Malenko and a Benoit and a Guerrero. Al Snow was right under that level. He was the pinnacle of indie wrestler here in the United States at this point. The stuff he was doing was very innovative at the time and, and very good. Unfortunately, he keeps his job here and we've gone to become Leaf Cassidy of the new rockers. And uh, so he never really ever got to showcase his abilities and, and, and the stuff he could do um, coming into the WWF. And by the time he got over and got the push with head, he was um, a little bit bigger and certainly worked a completely different style by then. So we never really got the Al Snow that I knew from Smoky Mountain or from the Independents, unfortunately, because uh, that, that, that was a, another guy that could have thrived 
in that WCW cruiserweight style. If that, I hate calling it that, but that's just another guy that would have thrived there with the uh, moveset that he had coming to the WWF. Of course, he comes into the WWF, and you see all the things he did here in this match. You'll note he never really does any of them again, uh, very often anyway. That's it for Al Snow and the Avatar gimmick. I think he pops back up like one more time in a tag match. It's basically a jobber to the stars against Sid and the Kid. I believe he teams up with Bob Holly or something like that and does a job there. Um, and that's several weeks off. So I was scratching my head for a few weeks here after the show, wondering where the hell Avatar went to. Uh, one person I don't have to wonder where they went to was uh, Barry Dedinsky because he's back. And it's $25 for a fucking cutout of Bret Hart or Shawn Michaels. Literally, a six-foot cutout of Bret or Shawn Michaels. $25. Are you serious? And that's $25 in 1995 money. That's got to be close to like $50 today. It's probably worth about that much now, if not more. So I would definitely pay 95 money for one of those just so I can sell it for 2020 money. <laughs> well, if, if you wanted to go back in time and wait 25 years and hold this fucking thing that's six feet tall somewhere for 25 years and keep it in pristine condition, if it's worth a, to doubling your money, then uh, more power to you. I, I, I'm not. Oh, it's probably it's probably <laughs> worth a, a lot more than that. Uh, it's probably worth about two or three hundred bucks if, if it's in pristine condition. It's my guess. It's still not worth fucking holding it for twenty five dollars. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure of that. Uh, it's announced that next week the broadcast television premiere of <laughs> Goldust, and he's thrown right in there with Savio Vega and Goldust's first TV match uh, against a uh, good worker like Savio Vega. Very smart. Putting him in there with a guy, the quality and, and the wrestling ability of Savio Vega, but just seems odd that uh, his debut or every one of his matches uh, for the first few months he's here is really against a name opponent versus just a job guy trying to get his his move set over. Uh, but if somebody's going to make you look good, it it could be Savio Vega. Absolutely, I'm excited. And we get a women's championship match now. It's Bertha Faye defending the championship against Alundra Blaze. Bertha Faye, of course, accompanied by her lover. Harvey Whippleman, Bertha had beaten Alundra back at SummerSlam for the belt, so this is the rematch. It only took, what, a couple months to get the uh, title rematch for Alundra Blaze here? I don't even know if we've seen either one of them on TV very much since SummerSlam, to be honest with you. I don't think we've seen them at all. They haven't even been mentioned here on Raw. It seems like every time we get a women's match, it's just in order to change the championship belt, and that's no different here. I I love how the women's division uh, has basically been Alundra Blaze and whoever she's feuding with. And that's pretty much about it. Uh, <laughs> and, and Bertha Faye had a career as Monster Ripper for years uh, before this stupid gimmick. She was a, I, I wouldn't call her trimmed down. Uh, she was a lot lighter than she was here as Bertha Faye. But she was still a big girl. And she was a, a tough girl. Uh, she came in with the paint and all that. I don't know if you remember when she debuted in the WWF. She looked completely different in the leather and the paint. And a completely different look when she attacked Alundra. And they, they did the gimmick where she supposedly broke her nose. So the lunger could go take time off and get a nose job. But uh, for her size, she was decent, but she only worked well when she felt like working. Lucky for us, tonight on Raw, I think she felt like working. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't a bad match at all. And uh, FaZe dominates the match. Uh, we go to a, another break. So this is really starting to get irritating on this episode. We, we go to break twice during the Battle Royal. And now we go to a break again during this women's title match. Seems like they could have planned these breaks a little better. Um, we come back from break. Alundra Blaze makes the comeback. Great bumps by Bertha Faye for her size. Really good bumps. Taking bumps and rolling right up to her feet. I don't know if you noticed. It takes a lot of uh, coordination to take the bump and kind of do the roll through and just pop right back up on your feet in one 
fluid motion, and she's doing that here, and that's pretty cool. Uh, by this point in the match, it was uh, already much much better than the SummerSlam match, by uh, my opinion, anyway. Uh, Lundra Blaze tries a pile driver, which gets a big pop from the crowd when she's trying to wrap her hands around Bertha Faye for the pile driver, but you knew that wasn't happening, and Bertha Faye backdrops her way out of the move, and Bertha goes to the middle rope, misses whatever the hell she was going for there. We go into the finish. Bertha, uh, Harvey Whippleman's up on the apron. Bertha Faye crashes into Harvey. Alundra grabs her from behind, nails the German suplex, gets the win, and regains the ladies' championship in about nine minutes. Uh, that's with commercials, nine minutes. Uh, here's something I thought I'd never say, but I guess Vince would regret taking the belt off Bertha here because Alundra Blaze regains the belt, and we all know what happens here in just a matter of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely made a mistake there, but it's like, Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, you know, that sort of deal. Uh, or shame on you, then shame on me. Can't believe you let this happen again. I mean, yeah. it's Vince McMahon. You don't expect somebody to get the upper hand on him twice in such a short period of time, but it happened. So, uh, We get post-match shenanigans with uh, Bertha basically breaking up with Harvey Wibbleman, chasing him to the backstage locker room. I think that's the last we see of Harvey as a manager in the WWF that I can recall. And uh, we don't see Bertha other than Survivor Series at this point. So for all intents and purposes, that whole routine is uh, broken up and done with. So, yeah, that's it. That's the end of Harvey Wibbleman as a manager. And other than the uh, Survivor Series match, that's pretty much the end of Bertha Faye as well. We go to an interview with Jim Ross. He's with Shawn Michaels. Shawn calls the guys who beat him thugs. So that seems to be the, the name they like to use. Vince McMahon, Shawn Michaels, everyone just, just referring to him as thugs. Uh, nothing, nothing more, nothing less. It was originally 10 guys last week. Now we're down to nine. So I'm curious to see how many it's, it's going to be by the end of the year. But um, how, how we go from 10 to nine or how Sean was able to count nine guys uh, is beyond me. Well, when, when you're getting your ass beat by nine guys, I, I think the last thing you're doing is counting how many are out there. And I think, I think the, uh, there was only one guy actually doing the ass beating, no matter how many were actually out there, in regards to Sean Michaels himself. I think it was only one or two of the guys that participated in that. But. Uh, that is what that is, and that concludes the show. So what would you think of Raw, and uh, who who won the segment of the night for you? Uh, just one thing I want to touch on on the interview. He did make, yeah. make a statement here for him to have to go out and give the title to someone who is extremely overrated, I think was his words. <laughs> it felt like a shoot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it definitely felt like a shoot a little bit, using the word extremely and then overrated. They didn't, yeah, nobody overrated. ever said overrated. Yeah, nobody said overrated. Yeah, that's a shoot word. And uh, and he said he's undeserving. He said he says the hardest thing he had to do. But yeah, woe is me is what that promo was. But anyway, uh, the best part I think by default was the battle royal. It took up the majority of the show. Uh, the rest of the show was pretty underwhelming. It was kind of flat, nothing special. But yeah, uh, the battle royal by far is definitely the uh, best part of the show. Yeah, I think you you know for me the entire show was pretty cool. We got the attempted debut of Avatar, which had it hit instead of miss, that would have been awesome. So it's kind of a what if for me, but just seeing the Avatar gimmick out there was cool. The women's match was not bad, so I'm cool with that over just, you know, a generic squash. Or I thought that was good too, but yeah, absolutely 100%. The segment of the night had to go to the Battle Royal. It was fun. The Owen and Marty Jannetty stuff, especially fun. Yeah, it was, a, it was okay Raw overall. I, I didn't mind anything that they put out there as far as in-ring stuff. Uh, the, any of the three matches. So I was cool with all of it, but the battle Royal by far was the best thing on the show. And we move on to WCW nitro for October 23rd. We're in Huntsville, Alabama. We're in Bobby Eaton country here. 
7,000 fans, but only 2,100 paid. That's Alabama for you, I suppose. And uh, man, sign me up for some paper tickets. I wish I knew about that type of shit when wrestling was in the lull anyway. Uh, I always had to pay for my tickets. I didn't go to the shows very often, but I, I probably could have ended up going to a lot more if I knew they were just going to hand stuff out. <laughs> and uh, this episode of Nitro is a go-home show. It's the uh, go-home show to Halloween Havoc. And we kick things off with Macho Man Randy Savage in the ring with Kurosawa. What an odd pairing this is. And uh, if you notice, Savage was taped up. His elbow was taped up pretty mm-hmm. good. So I'm thinking he probably shouldn't even have been cleared. In this day and age, probably wouldn't have been cleared to even go out there and work this match. But he's, he's taped up. And uh, we get Kurosawa out there. He's got Colonel Rob Parker as his manager. Rob Parker gets in the face of Savage. Savage takes a cigar away from Parker, shoves him down. Kurosawa attacks. It's back and forth. Lots of, it's lots of arm work by Kurosawa. He uh, at one point misses a front leg round kick, according to Eric Bischoff anyway, and kicks the ring post outside. I thought it was a good spot. Savage moved out of the way, and Kurosawa tries for that big kick and kicks the post instead. Yeah, it looked awesome. In the thud from his boots, because he has different... Kurosawa has weird wrestling boots. Yeah. Uh, they almost look like pirate boots without the overlaying flap on the outside. Um, so they, they come up to his knees, but they're not like kick pads. And uh, he, he nailed that post and um, made a nice little thud noise. So it's was, it was pretty cool. And if you needed any proof that Randy Savage did not belong out there for this match, uh, the finish uh, told that story. Oh, yeah. Randy grabs Kurosawa with his one good arm and tries to run him throat first across into the into the top rope. And Savage has almost no power behind it. There's no strength behind it. It just looks very weak and very fake. And Kurosawa has to sell it like a million bucks. And then Savage follows mm-hmm. that up with the awkward looking clothesline. And then they're completely out of position. I, I just don't know what was going on with Macho Man here tonight. The entire spot was completely out of position. Savage goes up into a corner for the elbow drop, and Kurosawa's on his stomach. So Kurosawa has to roll over, but then is not uh, not in normal position for Savage's elbow. Now, I don't know if that was planned by design based on Savage's elbow, or if Savage just had to call an audible on the top rope and land the elbow in a diff- different way than usual. But he does hit the elbow and uh, wins the match, pins Kurosawa in about nine minutes with commercials with the elbow off the top rope. What did you think of this? It was something was up. He didn't. He didn't hardly do anything. He did this this spot with Parker at the beginning. Kurosawa do- dominated everything, and I think he just ran him into that top rope and clotheslined him through the, on that top rope, and then he hit the elbow. It looked like he used his off elbow or something. I don't know. It, it looked awkward. It looked bad. I, I thought they've done a pretty good job of building up Kurosawa with breaking Hawk's arm, and then yeah. he completely destroyed Pittman. Having him have to just sell like that for uh, a terrible, terrible-looking clothesline on the top rope, uh, it did him no favors, and that was pretty much it for him. His whole push and everything was done at this point. I'm not taking him serious anymore. Yeah, I mean, this this match was shit, and I think a lot of that was Savage's fault, and not because he's a a bad worker. That's silly, but he had no business out here. I mean, I I give him this much. He, He powered through this match with a clearly uh, very injured elbow. When he didn't need to, though, is the, is the problem. There's all of this talent on the roster. There was no reason Savage had to go out here and beat Kurosawa going into Halloween Havoc. Uh, Savage yeah. is already working Halloween Havoc. We already know what happens at Halloween Havoc. He has nothing to prove here. And, and work this nine-minute match on top of it. Just um, This killed Kurosawa for me. 
And like you said, yeah. after being built up the way he had been, this is, you basically fed him to the lions. You, you fed a guy, you were building an up and comer to one of your main event stars who clearly wasn't going to do the job here. Um, this was yeah. bad. The match was bad. Savage had no business in the ring. Uh, shame on him for, for forcing this to happen. Shame on everyone who allowed this to happen. It was very obvious there were issues out there, and the match was, was awful. Yeah, it was pretty terrible. I, I think Meltzer mentioned that he had a pretty bad elbow, and um, this lingers all the way into next year, the taped-up elbow. He's supposed to get surgery. I know Meltzer, I remember reading throughout the Observers in 95 that he was supposed to he kept on delaying surgery, delaying surgery, and all of a sudden, you know, what happens in 96 early on with, you know, Elizabeth and things like that. He never really, I don't think he ever really got that surgery. He just fought through it. And the injury must have just happened at this point because yeah. this is the probably the worst he looked with that injury taped up and everything. Yeah, we certainly hadn't better. seen, yeah, we certainly hadn't seen his elbow taped up before the show. So, yeah, you're, you're right on there. So I, I think he keeps on putting it off and putting it off and just deals with it. And next segment, oh man, here we go. It's the master, <laughs> King Curtis Iakea. He does an interview on the big screen. He tells Kevin Sullivan he has an insurance policy for him. I've never seen somebody that lives in a cave somewhere, some prehistoric alternate universe that has insurance policies, but here we go, only in WCW. The master introduces a man in a giant block of ice called the Yeti, or as Tony Schiavone would call him, the Yeti! Uh, the Meltz claims this is going to end up being the giant Gonzalez, a.k.a. Eligante, but because Gonzalez is having visa problems down there in Argentina, he didn't make it into the country on time, and so they basically introduced this gimmick without actually having the wrestler who's supposed to be portraying this gimmick there at the arena. Uh, what did you, what, let's not talk about what happens later in the show yet. Let's just talk about these initial impressions of the, uh, the, the plastic block of ice. Oh my God, man. This is so bad. Even for 1995, this is yeah. terrible. And New level. I, I don't know whose idea this was. I don't know if this was Kevin Sullivan. I don't know who came up with this stupid crap, but, uh, it was horrible. I love, I, I will say, I love Curtis IK's voice. Oh yeah. He was perfect for this role. I mean, it, no matter how terrible or hokey it is, IK was amazing here. Just all the paint and the get up on his, his look was just incredible. It, it fit the gimmick for sure. This was pathetic. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, so that's bad. a that's a good word. You know, sometimes there's just undescribable words for certain things, and pathetic just doesn't do this justice. Uh, it's bad, and it gets worse as the show goes on. And I have notes as uh, as the show goes on as well. But uh, uh, immediately after the master introduces this block of plastic. Uh, mean Gene decides to, to uh, do an interview with Kevin Sullivan and the Giant right in front of this uh, so-called block of ice. And just to expose it a little further, as you see all the plastic cracks that are meant to break open later in the uh, program. Uh, sorry to spoil it for everyone, but it's just the Giant and uh, Kevin Sullivan out there. A nothing promo. Uh, we have Halloween Havoc coming up Sunday. The Giant's coming for Hogan. He's going to beat him in the truck. He's going to beat him for the world title. The Yeti will also wind up not being the only insurance policy in the back pocket of Kevin Sullivan, but we'll get to that later on. That's uh, followed by a promo from Hulk Hogan, also dressed in all black, oh, brother. <laughs> What's wrong, man? You don't like this one? Uh, we can, we'll talk about it, I'm sure. Um, yeah, wow. 
So we get this promo. It's Hulk Hogan. He's all dressed in black. He's got Jimmy Hart with him as usual. Hogan plays tweener here, teasing a, a little heel here. He tells Sting, Savage, and Luger uh, that they're dogs after his carcass. And uh, he's, he says he'll beat them all. Uh, he talks Kevin Sullivan and the Giant and even the Yeti, who hasn't even debuted yet. Uh, and then in perhaps the most tasteless line in a long time, he shows his black gloves. Hogan's wearing black gloves and, and says, Everyone knows what people can do with black gloves and a black cap. Uh, basically referencing OJ, I thought this oh was unnecessary. Uh, this seemed like something that Hogan would have probably came up with on his own. <laughs> um, totally aloof. Yeah, he said like, oh my God, man, where do you even start with this? I, I totally didn't even, I don't recall ever hearing this. Me I, I must have not paid attention. Yeah, uh, I don't remember this at all. Even the times I've I've rewatched Nitro '95 probably three or four times. It's probably my fourth or fifth time going through it, and I never picked up on this. I, I what in the world is he doing? He says everyone knows what a guy wearing a what, wearing black gloves and a black rag on their head can do. <laughs> uh, wow! So you, you're just going to turn into a murderer all of a sudden, Hogan? Okay. Yeah, and it's again, um, it's uh, playing light, just like Vince did with the 900 number. Playing light to there were people that were murdered. I don't care if OJ did it or not. Let's take OJ out of the equation. You're referencing murders. These people died. Yeah, they have families and friends, mm -hmm. and they were human beings. And Hogan's out here, you know, right. just in the gloves and the and the black do rag hat, and just uh, yeah, just I, what was the I don't I don't get it. And this so. So felt like a Hogan thing, like, oh, I got a great idea today, brother. And nobody's going to tell him no. Well, yeah, nobody can tell him no. He's going to do what he wants. But um, I don't care how mainstream a case is. I don't care if OJ was found not guilty. There's certain things you don't touch, and this is one of them. And back-to-back -back weeks, we got both companies crossing the line of, what they should or shouldn't be doing. And, right, um, and it should be known that uh, last week OJ was acquitted at this point, last, last Tuesday. Yeah. Or, or maybe two I weeks ago now. Say, like, Actually, it might have been two weeks ago now that I think about it. But yeah, just recently OJ had been acquitted, so Hogan basically, that's why he's saying, uh, imagine what you can get away with when you're wearing gloves and a black uh, a black rag. So yeah, rag, I think right. that's why they probably thought it was okay because he was found not guilty. So, uh, yeah, look what happened. Look what OJ did wearing this stuff. So just imagine what I'm going to do wearing this stuff. Um, yeah, they're basically I'm, playing I, up. I, I was, they're basically playing sure. up that they, they believe OJ murdered, did the murders, and now, yeah. you know, now playing off that. I just I thought it was just so, so tasteless. So and They're so aloof to things, <laughs> you know. That, that explains a lot of things that Hogan got in trouble for later on as well, I think. He's just I, in, I don't even in, know in his own world. Yeah, I don't, and we got to think too, 95, and I don't want to get too deep into this because it is it is what it is. Nothing can be done to stop it now or change it. But I think wrestling, and even still today, wrestling, nobody really seems to care. I mean, Benoit had a whole three-hour special Raw dedicated to his life. And yeah, they get some grief for it. But at the end of the day, mainstream media and things like that, they don't really care about wrestling. So I feel yeah. like there's some aura of like invincibility or something that the wrestling business just has because nobody cares. Everybody just thinks it's the lowest of lows as far as entertainment goes. They're going to do stupid stuff. They're going to say stupid stuff. They're going to do whatever it takes to get something over or sell a show or something like that. So it's just, it's just accepted. Whereas other 
forms of entertainment don't really have that luxury. So I feel like they probably think they can just do whatever the hell they want, especially 1995. Yeah. Uh, nobody was covering wrestling in 95 at all. Yeah, and I so, just, just, I've seen so many stupid things Hogan said just, just in the last 10, 15 years. I'm not even referencing his, his racist comments. I just mean some of the other stupid things that he said. I just don't think he gets it. I don't think he understands how stupid he sounds at, at times. I think that's really just goes in with that. I think he thinks he sounds cool and he sounds like an idiot. Uh, but that's just my opinion. The, the gist of this promo, however, was not O.J. Simpson. It was Hogan taking off his neck brace. And throwing it away. I guess he's all healed, brother. Uh, vitamins, dude. Yeah, that's it. Vitamins. <laughs> and, I, and I agree with you about Hogan. I, he's so far gone, and he, he's in his own little world. that, And nobody's ever checked him. No, who's told Hulk Hogan no since 1982? Right. No, nobody. So he's been given a free pass for the last 35 years. He's going to well, do I, I think wants, I think Vern kind of told him. I think Vern kind of told him no. But then Vern paid for that for the rest of his, his life, at least at least the rest of his career as a promoter anyway. So that's what yeah, happens, absolutely. brother. We move on. up this uh, Coming up this week on Saturday night, we get more Hulk Hogan. Yay. Uh, Lex Luger takes on the Shark. Wow. And then the American Males will defend the World Tag Team titles against Harlem Heat, which will actually wind up being a title switch. It's already been recorded. And then we get another shot of the fucking Ice Cube that won't go away. And you can just... It, becomes more and more obvious. You can see the cracks in the ice cube. It looks completely fucking, I know. Yes, I understand it wasn't ice. It wasn't, nobody ever thought it was going to be fucking ice, but it looks completely plastic. They're not even, they don't have the lighting, the proper lighting, the, the smoky effect yeah. or something to kind of try to hide the fact that this is fake as hell. Like the gobbledygooker egg looks a hundred times more realistic than this fucking block of ice. Yeah. And I think, it looks like that that crap you put down when you're like painting the walls, like that paper that you would, or the the plastic stuff you put down so you don't get paint all over your floor or whatever. It, it looks like that. I mean, it, it's really hard to explain. If you haven't seen this episode in a long time, go back and watch it. And uh, but don't blame me. I didn't tell you to go back. I didn't tell you to go back and watch it. Actually, I will say, how about we just throw up a picture on our Twitter account, and we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll save you the time. We, yeah, we can do that. I did grab screen caps, so I, I can do that for you guys. I'll save you guys the uh, the misery of going back and trying to watch these shitty Yete promos here, or whatever you want to call these, <laughs> these cutaways to the uh, block of ice. Anyways, we move away from the block of ice and into the ring with Eddie Guerrero and JL, Jerry Lynn, taking on Chris Benoit and Malenko. What a culture shift here. <laughs> uh, oh yeah the the baby faces JL and Eddie Guerrero are accompanied by Alex Wright who's on crutches Alex Wright had legitimately blown out his knee and so Jerry Lynn's here replacing him in this tag team match on paper though wow what a match uh, I'm gonna and it did deliver too unfortunately uh, this match is given this the shit treatment on it though not only a commercial break during the match but for no reason whatsoever, remember that epic Scott Norton shark match or, or feud that began, you know, with the second week of Nitro? Uh, well, they're back at it again. After this many weeks, we're interrupted. This match is interrupted in the middle of this match for fucking Scott Norton and Shark <laughs> brawling in the back. Shark, the same guy who just jobbed a sting uh, a couple weeks ago in like a minute and a half. Now we're cutting away from matches in the ring to watch Shark Brawl with Scott Norton in a feud that took place like six weeks ago that everyone forgot about or wanted to forget about anyway. Now we're reminded. 
I, do, I this came out of nowhere. And I remember this. I don't remember it taking place in this match, but I remember this happening way back when. And I just remember thinking even then, what, what the fuck? I thought, I thought this was over with weeks ago. So just out of nowhere, they bring this back and they decide to put it on in the middle of this match. Yeah, it just goes to what I was talking about. These guys, we know the talent and we can, we like now we know the talent and we knew most, a lot of people knew back then too. There's somebody like you who've seen, seen them before getting here. It's just, are they going to get the time to get characters or get some sort of development? And are the commentators going to care? And I think that's one of the biggest issues that WCW had in their entire existence is they use these cruiserweight matches as filler and entertaining matches, but they use them as avenues to push other agendas because they didn't want to really push what's going on with Hogan during a Kevin Nash match who's doing something different. I'm just using them as an example. So they use these matches to just put over everything else. And it's uh, it's such a shame how much talent they had, and they totally blew it. It's just incredible. Yeah, and and before, uh, even though I disagreed with it, they were cutting away for things like Hulk Hogan. Here we're cutting away for Shark and Scott Norton, two guys who haven't even really, well, like I said, Shark did that 90-second job to sting, but other than that, neither guy's really even been on Nitro. So it's just uh, amazing that they, they, yeah, that they chose to do this. It really, it's a head-scratcher, to say the least. And meanwhile, like, how, there's, how important is uh, Benoit, who showed up in a limo and saying this is where the big boys played, and his second match on nitro he's getting interrupted by shark and scott norton Make, yeah, makes and, all the sense in the world yeah and they really don't even give benoit that gimmick any, anymore moving forward which really seemed weird to me way back when as well uh really good stuff going on in the ring in between all this shit alex wright uh winds up tripping up d malenko with his crutch and jl makes the pin on malenko with a victory roll match went damn near 12 minutes unfortunately the crowd hasn't been trained to know what good wrestling is here in wcw yet though so Look what Bischoff had, and, and it really didn't seem like he even realized it yet. Uh, this quality shit going on in the ring, and he's just more interested in uh, catering to his buddy from Minnesota, Scott Norton. Pretty much. Like I said, Bischoff knew they were good in the ring, but he had no idea what to do with them. And I don't think he knew exactly what he had to the caliber of what he had in his hands. I don't think he ever realized it before it was too late. And then after the match, and I have no idea why, but out of nowhere, Brian Pillman shows up and just DDTs Guerrero, lays him out right in the middle of the aisleway as the baby faces are leaving the ring on the floor. What great matches that would have been between Guerrero and Pillman here while Pillman was still mobile and able to get around the ring, but it just came out of nowhere. I mean, was it just a further Pillman's crazy gimmick? Like he can do anything at any time for no reason whatsoever. I, I didn't like it caught me off guard completely because I didn't remember it. And I don't remember anything really coming out of this. So correct me if I'm wrong there. Uh, I don't remember anything coming out of it either. I think it's what you said. It's just the crazy gimmick. And after he dropped him with the DDT, uh, he gave him the four horsemen sign. So uh, I think that's what he's kind of going with there. I think this is, was this also the start of the Alex Wright heel turn? I can't remember. No, that's not quite. <clears throat> no, I think this is just Alex doing a one-up. I, I don't know if we missed something in the match where they kind of messed with him while he was on crutches or whatever because I didn't notice anything. But again, they cut away and they did all these, this horse shit. So who knows? I just felt like it was Alex Wright getting, you know, getting one for the good guys. Where do we go? We go back to the glacier. Not that glacier, the original glacier, the Yeti glacier. Uh, they're showing it again. And this time the lights are actually reflecting off of the plastic glacier, the block of ice. Uh, at this point, I wrote in my notes, stop showing the fucking ice block. <laughs> it was bad. 
And it wouldn't be the last time we see it either. <laughs> it's uh, main event time. We get Sting and Lex Luger out there teaming up against Harlem Heat, who are scheduled to win the World Tag Team titles this uh, Saturday night. So technically, even though the Heat aren't holding the belts here, they have already won them. So explain that to the people at center stage who already saw the title change. But that is what it is. I don't know if you noticed this, but three out of four guys in this match are wearing red and yellow. So I guess now that Hogan's in black, I guess red and yellow is open to whoever wants it. And Sting didn't really conversate with Harlem Heat before they went into this match. And it looked like three guys were wearing the same gear here. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, I think um, Hogan even mentioned in his promo that he's like, I've seen Sting. He's even still in my colors now. So uh, you would I notice think Sting that. just did it to, to play into that, to that whole whose side is who everybody on, you know, Luger, Savage, Sting, they all have different issues with Hogan or Hogan thinks they have issues with him and things like that. So I think Sting's just playing into that a little bit. One thing I did want to pick up on here, though, is I thought Sherry looked pretty damn high here. And, like, Heenan mentions it, and Bischoff's like, you're a sick human being if you find Sherry attractive, is essentially what he was saying. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, I'm just curious. Like, what's with all the hate on Sherry all these years from these uh, face commentators? Like, they always bag on her. Gorilla did. Everybody. It was like the running I joke think, or something. Well, I felt Trash like. Er, yeah, every time I heard it in the WWF, I took it as character, though. I never really took it as. That's what I thought, too. But with Bischoff, man, different story. He just seemed to not really like Sherry. I don't know. I'm not saying this particular comment was based on that, but just based on, you know, the issues and. I even remember Sherry's Hall of Fame speech where she shits on Bischoff without realizing he's in the crowd, which I thought was awesome. Yeah, yeah they, clearly they Sick had issues. Being, though, that's way further than character. That yeah. seems yeah. authentic a little bit. Yeah, and I know, I know Bischoff didn't care for Sherry's uh, after-work activities. I think she uh, enjoyed the cocktails a little. But uh, this match here, Harlem Heat versus Sting and Luger, not a good match at all. Very slow. Uh, Luger's in the ring far too much for it to be a good match. Sherry even t- gets bored, so she starts looking at pol- Polaroids of herself with Colonel Rob Parker, who she's in love with at this point. And remember Polaroids, Steve? <laughs> but it's just <laughs> yeah, I remember those things. So she doesn't have a cell phone to look at pictures at, so she's looking at Polaroids. Uh, Booker winds up missing a Harlem Hangover, and for good reason. Had he connected, uh, he would have he would have murdered him. So murdered Sting here. Sting gets the hot tag or the lukewarm tag because he uh, or. Luger's the one who got out of the way of the hangover. Okay, so Booker misses the Harlem hangover on Luger, and that's kind of a shame. I kind of wish he connected now that I know that. But uh, Luger gets the hot tag to Sting. Sting comes in. Stinger splashes to both Harlem Heat. Uh, he tries for the Scorpion on Stevie, uh, on Booker T, but Stevie comes in. Uh, then Lex comes in. So we get a four-away here. Harlem Heat with a double suplex on Luger. Uh, but while the referee's trying to get Stevie Ray out of the ring, Sting comes in and pins Booker T with a top rope clothesline. Match goes about 9 minutes, 45 seconds with commercials. And uh, out of all the teams that Sting and Luger could beat here, Slater and Bunkhouse Buck, the Blue Bloods, the lower-tier Dungeon of Doom guys, why job the guys that are about to regain the world titles on Saturday night? Doesn't that just hurt your world tag team championship? Yeah, it's narrow-minded thinking and just stupid booking, man. It was. It doesn't make sense. And you got to remember, the Saturday night's already been taped, so they're fully aware already in the booking plans that Harlem Heat are getting the belts back this week. Uh, it just makes the tag division feel like an afterthought. And I know there were rumors forever that Bischoff wanted to end the tag division and the tag belts, feeling that tag wrestling was a fad and passe. Uh, I, I thought that was a completely idiotic statement. And I remember the infancy of the internet days uh, reading that and worrying, oh my God, is, is, 
is tag team wrestling going to go away? And WC like, I was scared. I truly believed it because it was, it became known as a fact that Bischoff did want to do away with tag wrestling. I mean, he still wanted to have tag matches when it suited a storyline, but he didn't want an actual tag division with tag teams and tag team titles. Uh, he just, he was over it. And I was worried there for quite a while that it was actually going to happen. WWF should have took heed and done it with the shit tag division they had at this point. Yeah, but, if uh, anybody needed to get rid of a tag division in 95, <laughs> it was definitely the WWF. I mean, it's funny. You listen to those names. I'm not saying they're like overly over, but I mean, the Blue Bloods, Buck and Slater, you know, Harlem Heat, American Males. At least you had tag teams that were actual tag teams, not just yeah. guys throwing together. So they had something there. It's just Bischoff didn't care, so I don't think he gave a crap if he jobbed out his tag team champions because he didn't care anyway. So, And here we go with the post-match shenanigans to end the show. And out comes the Giant, and a choke slam to Lex Luger, and a choke slam to Sting. And I believe this is the first choke slam to Sting, so finally, you know, everybody's been calling into question if, if Sting's been choke slammed. I think this is the first time we've seen the Dungeon of Doom attack Sting. I'm not positive on that, but I believe this might be it. And man, I'm telling you, if Luger is going this far out of his way to trick Randy Savage, uh, that, that he's not really part of the Dungeon of Doom, you have to wonder why. Just to say he did? Just, just like Ric Flair and Sting, just to say I did trick you? I mean, what else are you getting out of this? So Luger gets choke slammed, Sting gets choke slammed, out comes Randy Savage to make the save but he really can't do anything with that elbow. So Hulk Hogan's in the ring shortly after Randy Savage and kind of takes over with the Giant. Hogan unloads on the Giant. The Giant kind of no-sells it at first. He goes after Hogan, so Hogan hulks up, and all of a sudden the Giant starts selling for Hogan's offense. And I had to question, why would you have this guy just so close to the pay-per-view start selling for Hogan? I mean, all you had to do was make him look unbeatable for just this last couple minutes of Nitro. And you're walking into Halloween Havoc thinking, how can Hulk Hogan possibly beat this guy? Instead, we see him sell some punches from Hogan here. And even Doug Dillinger jumps in the ring to s- separate the two. He, he brings a fucking uh, night, nightstick into the ring to try to separate the two, uh, uh, a billy club of some sort. Uh, I, I thought he was out there trying to uh, intimidate the people sneaking in signs because Doug Dillinger, in case you don't know, just just a security guy for WCW. But... Um, yeah, so Hulk hulks up, and he, he sends the giant rocking a little bit there. I thought this was stupid. I, I, I enjoy this segment, and spoiler, I thought this was my favorite part of the whole show, uh, to be honest with you, uh, because I thought it did a good a, a good job of selling the pay-per-view. However, I'm with you. like They shouldn't have touched at all. It, it, I would have been fine if the show ended with them staring each other down, and then the, the show just went off to black. So maybe kind of flipped the order of what happened okay. uh, send everybody out let them clear the clear the ring and that leaves you hogan and giant they're about to square off and then all of a sudden the show's over and that would have been way more effective and then you have to pay to see him touch however yeah. that's not what we got here we got a small competition oh, if only that was the way this show ended if only they had faded the black just a minute or two earlier because it mm-hmm. doesn't end there with mere seconds left in the show seconds left in the show all they had to do was screw up on the time, and we would have never seen this make the light of day. Uh, but unfortunately, it does make the light of day, and I remember this. I remember seeing this when it happened. With mere seconds left in the broadcast, we cut away to the giant block of ice. The original glacier, if you will. The ice cube explodes, and out pops a mummy. 
a fucking mummy. A seven foot plus fucking mummy. And don't even get me started on the differences between a fucking mummy and a Yeti! Let me channel the exact sentence I said 25 years ago when this shit first aired. Uh, Kids, close your ears. What the fuck was that? And it happened so fast. The way you see it on the network is the way it played out back then 25 years ago. Only you didn't have DVR to rewind it real quick and see what you just saw. Make sure you even saw what you saw. The Yeti, the Yeti, pops out of this plastic block of ice and you see him for like two seconds, two split seconds, and the show fades to black. And you're like, did, did I just see what I, I, I think I fucking saw? A, fu- a fucking mummy? And in 1995, and with Gonzalez not there, Giant Gonzalez not there, he actually never comes in. And so this mummy, this Yeti, is actually Ron Reese, who had also worked as Big Ron Stud some as a, a big job guy here in 95. We've been giving WCW and the Dungeon of Doom a lot of shit for being too cartoony for the mid-90s, but this takes it uh, to an entirely new level. They're trending in the wrong direction. And this was just fucking awful, man. Yeah, it was it was pretty terrible. I feel a little differently about how, <laughs> compared to you, as far as the way this last segment went, I felt like it was a decent way to hype the pay-per-view. I mean, it kind of got away from the monster truck. I didn't even hear about the monster truck outside of the ad. Uh, I got a little teaser between Hogan and the Giant. I'd like to see more of that. And yeah, the Yeti did pop up, but like you said, there's no ability for dvr and it's like did you really just see what i thought i saw so that that could have bought some got some buys uh to be honest with you so you, you just never know what, what may work or what may not um i i would never buy a pay-per-view to see something that i thought i saw but i was interested in the hogan giant and i thought they i wish they would have fade to black uh after all the shenanigans and then they clear the ring for hogan and giant and then that's how they end it as a teaser but they didn't but, yeah, the Yeti is the Yeti. I mean, there's nothing more that needs to be said. It um, was stupid know, <clears throat> then, it's stupid now, and it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't understand where they're going with. Let's just pretend like it was um, a good idea at the time. You're just getting into your feud with the giant, a seven feet. Uh, I'm not sure how tall Paul White is, but he's well over. He's over seven feet tall. And he's in the feud with this giant who you're trying to sell as your giant. And so you go and find a guy that's taller than the giant. And clearly going to be feuding with Hogan as well. It's like the giant becomes an afterthought here. Or or that was the intention anyway. Even if he was going to get the world title, Hogan clearly had plans to wrestle someone bigger than the giant before he came back and took his belt back from from Paul White. I'm I'm, I'm just guessing here the original booking plans, but it just seemed like overkill. It's like... You just start your feud with uh, Earthquake, but then you break in Yoko, bring in Yokozuna and start feuding with him a couple weeks later while you're feuding with the Earthquake. It's just, uh, I, I don't really get what they were going for here. Now let's go back to what this shit was beyond shitty booking. If you're thinking this wasn't bad, just listen to this sentence, people. As the show ended, the Yeti broke free from a block of ice. Think about that sentence for a minute and how re-fucking ridiculous that sounds. A mummy pops out of an ice cube. This makes the gobbledygooker look good. At least the turkey came out of a fucking egg. This had a mummy come out of a fucking igloo. I I don't know. I don't really know what else to say about it. And that is how you go home to Halloween Havoc. (laughs) All you can do is laugh. I mean, it's it really is that terrible, man. I, I totally forgot that they showed him on Nitro, to be honest with you. 
Uh, I was not expecting him to pop out. I thought they just left the the iceberg or whatever the hell you want to call it there the whole night, and then it's going to erupt at Halloween Havoc, kind of like what they did with the Gobbledygooker in WWF. But I was completely thrown off that they actually bursted out right at the end there. So, yeah, terrible. Completely terrible. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember that vividly to this day. I mean, obviously it's on the network, so anybody can watch it and remember it, but I'll never forget the, what was going through my mind when I saw it. It was just such a short glimpse, literally probably two seconds, and then the show fades to black. So you really don't really get a long shot of them. But yeah, it was just another worldly uh, bad, and it doesn't last very long. In fact, he thaws out by World War III, according to Tony Schiavone anyway, when he changes his gear. Uh, anyway, Steve, let's move on. Uh, what was your Nitro segment of the night? Uh, I kind of already gave it away. I actually, when I was watching it, I just watched it a little earlier. I enjoyed the Hogan Giant confrontation. Uh, it was crazy. It's kind of like what WWF picks up on later on towards the end, like in the attitude era of building up a pay-per-view, like the go-home show. Just all hell breaking loose, kind of get everything thrown in there and uh, try to pop a buyer, buyer too. So I, I enjoyed, entertainment-wise only, I enjoyed the Hogan Giant stuff. Yeah, Best my, match was clearly the tag between Eddie and them, but entertainment alone, I, I enjoyed Hogan and Giant. Yeah. I think my segment of the night, of the night had to be the Yeti! Uh, well, it was certainly the most memorable anyway, but no, it's uh, definitely not my favorite segment of the night, but it's certainly the most memorable. Uh, I think the tag match was easily the most enjoyable part of the show for me. Just the moves. I, I focused, even though there was other shit going on on the screen, I focused on the match. And uh, Eddie Guerrero and Jerry Lynn versus Malenko and Benoit is probably uh, my favorite part of the show. I'm curious to see if there's uh, ever a payoff with the Pillman and Eddie thing. I, I don't know if they ever wrestle one-on-one, -on -one, but I I'd like to see them at least go at it one time. At least it would make a little more sense. Even if it's not in revenge for the DDT, I'd just like to see the two go at it. I think that would be a good match. Here's what it is. I'll pick the, I'll pick the uh, cruiser style, for lack of a better term, tag match on the show. And then obviously the Yeti. The Yeti! is uh, the most memorable thing coming out of this show, though. And the uh, ratings are in. Monday Night Raw, coming off its pay-per-view, gets the win again this week, does a 2.6 rating with a 3.8 share. Nitro bumps down to a 2.2 rating and a 3.2 share. So Monday Night Raw, once again, gets the win here in the ratings. And this time they're coming off a pay-per-view. So typically, the not always, but typically the show coming off a pay-per-view uh, gets the nod on the following day's ratings, which makes sense. Yeah, everyone wants to see the fallout, so that makes perfect sense to me. We'll see if this holds true next week after uh, Halloween Havoc. Yeah, let's see if they hold everyone after this whole Yeti shit. Uh, the real winner here this week, Steve, <laughs> uh, who wins, Raw or Nitro? Uh, see, I didn't find the Sting-Luger match that bad. Commercial break helped. And I, I, the outside of the Kurosawa match, I thought Nitro was really good. So I'm going to go with Nitro. All right, I'm going to go on the other end. Uh, I had to go with Raw. I think it deserves a win here. I thought the women's match was very decent, especially for a WWF women's match. Uh, I thought it was pretty solid. Uh, I like the idea of the Avatar debuting. I don't know that the match was all that great, but I remember being excited for it. Uh, the, I thought the outfit was cool. I was happy Al Snow was getting a job. I, I, I liked the moves he attempted in the match, whether he connected necessarily or not. It's a different story. But um, And then the Battle Royal. I was just a big Battle Royal guy. And yeah, I know... Uh, damn near half the guys were eliminated during commercial breaks, but I still just enjoyed it. I thought from beginning to close, Raw had the better show. Uh, Nitro had had good po points. Like I said, that that damn tag match was great. 
Uh, but yeah, so I'm going to give the, the slight nod to Raw here. I think either one, based on your preference this week, could win. Really no uh, wrong winner uh, in this particular week, I would say. But that that should do it, man. We're heading into Halloween Havoc, and so I kind of touched on it earlier, but uh, Steve kind of talked me in to doing a watch-along for the WCW Halloween Havoc 95 pay-per-view. I'm a little trepidatious here. I don't know if I can make it through the show uh, without my head exploding, but it's going to be fun trying. I know we're going to have a lot of fun with the show. I'm certainly not going to be taking it very seriously since WCW doesn't seem to be taking itself very seriously. But because this is uh, Monday Warfare and not the Grenade, uh, we're not going to be doing that watch-along as part of this show. We're going to be doing the watch-along for Halloween Havoc as part of our Patreon account. So if you guys go on over to patreon.com slash WrestleCopia, you guys can sign up for the $7 all-access tier. It'll get you everything on the lower tiers, including our Power Hour podcast. It'll also get you all the random watch-alongs we do, including the upcoming WCW Halloween Havoc 95 show uh, that we're going to be doing. It'll actually already be out by the time you guys hear this. So, yeah, make sure you guys um, sign up and listen to it. It'll keep the continuity going uh, before you get to Episode 5 here of Monday Warfare. Yeah, absolutely. Sign up. Enjoy. There's a lot of good stuff on there already. Uh, We're constantly recording and adding new things, so definitely uh, check it out. Give us feedback as well at Twitter. Yeah, it it just looks like a fun show. We can have a lot of fun with it, I'm sure, though, in all seriousness. And, um, yeah, it'll be out by the time, certainly by the time you guys hear this episode. So go on over and sign up for our Patreon account. Listen to the Halloween Havoc 95 and everything else we put up there. I'm sure there's going to be tons more stuff uh, up there for your uh, listening pleasure uh, at this point. Uh, But, yeah, Steve, man, another great week of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. I had a great time. I'm I'm happy you joined me again this week. And uh, two more episodes of Raw, two more episodes of Nitro next time, and we're going to be coming off the Halloween Havoc pay-per-view. Yeah, I can't wait uh, for the aftermath of that. Maybe I can convince you uh, next month to throw down on a World War III watch-along. <laughs> mm, that's going to be a tough <laughs> oh, one. Oh, my God. Tough sell. Maybe Survivor yeah. Series. Who knows? We'll you keep know. it consistent. But uh should yes. be fun either way. Yeah. yeah. We'll talk about it. We'll see what happens. Something good for Thanksgiving time. I'm, I'm, you know, this is coming out around post-Thanksgiving here. So we'll see what we can do for you guys in the next few weeks. Something good before the holidays, I promise. Something good before Christmas, for sure. Uh, I'll try to relate it to this this uh, Monday Warfare, but I can't make any promises. But I'll definitely do something fun. Um, in the meantime, guys, thank you guys again for joining us on Monday Warfare. The Battles Within. Ray Russell, Steve Ekstat. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>